Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about GMC, Goals, Motivation, and Conflict. It is the foundation of your characterization, and it's also integral to your plot. Um, I build my plot around my GMC. It's important to recognize the themes that you're going to explore with your character going into the plot process or if you're a pantser going into the writing process knowing what you want for your character but basically also knowing what your character wants these goals motivations and conflicts are your character's backbone uh it's how your character is going to grow it's how they're going to move through the plot it's how other characters are going to interact with them and, and so forth. So we had a question um, that spawned this podcast. <coughs> Julie, do you want to read it while I drink some, like a, a stupid amount of tea? Sure. Um, this, this question is very specific and very focused, but we'll discuss more broadly than this. Um, so someone asked, they're trying to work on GMC to better plan their characters, but what is the difference between goal and motivation? Isn't a character motivated by their goal? What I would say is um they are intertwined and sometimes your character will have goals put upon them by outside forces and sometimes they will have goals of their own making so goals have internal and external components conflict can have external and internal components and motivation can be external and internal so when you look at the broad picture of your character as they're moving through your world they are outside forces act upon them in different ways and it causes reactions um whether it be like a fight or flight response or an emotional response or you know because you know we can take apart the motivations of a character like Harry Potter really easily. Most, like, 100% of his goal throughout the entire series has been put upon him. By fate, by society, by his mentor. He did not choose that goal. He was made to believe that goal was, was his duty. But if you think about the first book, when he's standing in front of the mirror of his Erzad? Erzad. Said, it's clear that Harry Potter's actual goal would be a family. Where you see a character like Ron Weasley getting all kinds of accolades and um, things that he has no intention of earning, Harry just wants a family. And that is his internal goal, whether it's acknowledged or not, throughout the books. And you see him trying to gather that close to him throughout the series and honestly failing through no fault of his own. And it's never more clear than in that moment in The Prisoner of Azkaban, when Sirius, a man he doesn't know from Adam, suggests that Harry come live with him, and Harry immediately says yes to a man he spent the whole year being petrified of. That level of desperation in the child is galling. Yeah. I will say, when it comes to... I think it's it's very difficult in when it comes to a character, because pe- people... When it comes to GMC, particularly, it's not linear. It's not like this happens and then this happens. And the people are complicated, and things are intertwined. And and it should they should be. It should be layered and complex. But I actually think the way this was phrased is typically backward, where it says, "Isn't a character motivated by their goal?" I would say it's the reverse. Um, 
motivation usually comes first and you know they're like usually the typical way that a human behavior happens is something happens you want to make change and so you have a goal so the motivation is the middle piece so you have the conflict then the motivation then the goal now gmc i don't, I don't know why the acronym came across came out in that order but i would say conflict happens first then motivation and then the goal um Although sometimes, but again, people, these, these things are not super linear. So it, the internal and external, especially when it comes to internal and external conflict, they can really fuck up, um, especially like internal motivation. Um, because outside forces can play on your character's motivation um, in unpredictable ways. And like I said, these things are not super linear. But usually... Um, um, I would I would say that the what what you're motivated by in, sort of informs your goal, um, as opposed to the goal informing your motivation, because usually there's some desire, there's some impetus for action that is making you want something, and so that motivation is there first. It also it needs to be pointed out that a goal isn't always motivating. No, so some some um, goals are, are just demotivating. Are, are the opposite, yeah. <laughs> And also, if, especially if the goal is not yours, if the goal is not the character's goal, it is a goal that's been pressed on them by societal norms or, you know, outright uh, survival. Um, a goal can be disheartening right? and, and a source of grief you have to separate and a source goal. of conflict. You have to separate goals from desires because they're not the same thing. A character may want something, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a goal. Because just because a character wants something doesn't mean they're actually going to take action to achieve it. So, um, also when it comes, yeah, like to... the Tri-Razor tournament. But like, like me personally, I have a great desire to go into space. It's not a goal because you know <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> It takes a lot of money to go into space unless you're, you know, <laughs> with NASA. Right. <laughs> and uh, you have to trust the person behind, behind uh, you know, at the stick. So, um, right. And I don't do that either. So I won't be going into space, but I would like to. It'd be awesome. It would, it would be, it's more like a dream than a goal. Right. And right. I think sometimes people have a, a hard time differentiating what these terms mean. Um and and separating parsing them out and i think more even more so than conflict that goals and the motivation are um inex inextricably intertwined you can't like unlink them because even something that is driven by something that's toxic um you can have toxic motivation you can have a toxic goal and that's realistic that happens um, when it comes to goals, now internal and external conflict are the easiest to parse out what is internal and external. Um, when it comes to goals, what is the difference between an internal and external goal? Internal, external goals are tangible. Internal goals are more intangible. That would be a simplistic way of looking at internal and external goals. Um, so if you're like trying to catch a killer, that's an external goal. That's something that's tangible. It's outside of yourself. If you want to find love that is intangible that that's an internal goal so um so i would generally parse internal external goals based upon it's it's tan how tangible it is that it's these things are not always nothing in writing 
I've ever found is 100% clean cut. There's always corner cases that don't fit a general rule. But, you know, that's one way of thinking about goals being internal versus external. Um, I think that a lot of people in general don't know the difference or don't discern the difference between need and want. Um, we are, on the whole, uh, materialistic. And so you say, okay, do you need a smartphone? No. Most of the time. I would say most people don't need a smartphone. Do in you this want a smartphone? Age, yes. Actually, in this day and age, I would almost think it's, we're, 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 we're hitting a tipping point with smartphones that you kind of do. Because we're hitting this point where more and more companies and more and more services are dependent upon you having a smartphone, you being able to use have download and install apps that you can't actually do on a desktop computer anymore. So I think it would really depend on the age group because I would say that any person between in my mother's age group who's not working probably doesn't need a smartphone. Possibly, I mean, but I mean, again, I think like I said I think we're too, it. It depends upon how many more services. Like I said, we're, I think we're. We're, we're hitting close to that tipping point where some people won't have a choice who are slow adopters, but to adopt because right. as companies are putting their services into app only and do you, are you Android or iOS or, you know, God help us. Are you on a, on a windows phone? Um, you know, what technology do you have to get this app? Oh, oh, I don't have a smartphone. And then they're just confused. Like, what are you talking about? So right. It, I had to explain to my little cousin what a landline was the other day. Right. Um, so when as companies are moving away, even from because um, there are companies that some of the technology leaders perceive a vision where we don't have desktop computers. And it, when technology leaders perceive that as the goal, eventually, there are going to be less there are going to be um, companies that are moving away from things being available on you know, for you to be able to do. And it's at the point, I would think already, where with, there are things you can't do in society without a computer, which is why. Look, you know, I'm not giving up my desktop computer. <laughs> you, and you can't, you can't. If you don't, if you don't have a computer and an internet, you have to go to the library and use their computer yeah. and their internet to function in society these days. But so, say like in 1980, a computer would have been a want, not a need. True, but again, this is whether something is a want or a need. Um, when we talk about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it kind of depends upon what year you're in, right? As to where you where 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 a particular technology falls um, on that hierarchy. I want to tell you um, a little story. Uh, my husband said, "Hey, do you want a smartwatch? Because I have a um, he well not a smartwatch. He asked me if I wanted a." a uh, oh, what's it? A Fitbit. And this is about four years ago. And I said, no. Well, what the hell would I do with a Fitbit? <laughs> I don't need some piece of technology bossing me around. Well, then he asked me again earlier this year, hey, do you want a Fitbit? Because I think it was like a sale on Amazon. And I got one for, I got a Versa too for like 50 bucks off. And I was like, Sh okay, fine, whatever. I'll take a Fitbit. And I have worn it every day since I got it. I use it to count steps. I use it to monitor my sleep. I use it as an alarm clock. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah. I didn't need that, but I want it. 
Well, and then there, but there come, and then there comes a point where something becomes so integrated into your life that when it's taken away, it its absence creates a need that needs to be filled. And either you have to figure out a new way of doing something or you need to get another smartwatch, right? I mean, it's it's not like you need literally need that you need a Fitbit. It's not that's not the issue. It's that you have uh you you function in your life in a way that includes this piece of technology that is integrated into the way you work. And when that's gone, well what do you do? It's sort of like, you know, if you have a certain way of monitoring, like let's say you were doing a lot of people now are doing like continuous glucose monitoring, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a need most people have, right? It's most, some diabetics do need continuous glucose monitoring, but not everybody who does it needs that. It's just, it's easier to put a sensor on every 10 days than it is to test their blood sugar four times a day. Believe me, I get it. Yeah. Um, my fingers get so sore. I'm considering right? a sensor. So you, when you, if, so is it a need there are other ways of testing your blood sugar, right? You don't also don't need a um, blood sugar bl- glucose monitoring system with Bluetooth that automatically sends your data straight to your smartphone. But once you've created a system that has this stuff built into it, when you take that away, the need is actually to incorporate a new process because you had a thing that worked right so you take your cgm away well not just you have to have let's say you say your insurance company goes we're not going to pay for you to have cgm anymore and um so you have to go back okay so the solution is you're going to go back to doing manual fingertip testing but now you don't just have to have the device you have to incorporate a whole new process into your life so it's there is a need that has to be filled but sometimes people have to parse out the want from the need I have to check my, I have to have at least four blood sugar readings a day. Okay. But it doesn't have to be a CGM. So, you know, what do I have to do to adapt my life to this thing I can no longer have? Um, hmm. I'd be like, well, how much is it for me to pay for it for myself? Right? <laughs> I'd be like that too. How much is now, that? Because <laughs> you're right. I don't need it, but I but, want it enough. That but I, yeah, there are, there is a difference between wants and needs. And I guess the more advanced your society is that you're working in, the more intricate your character's needs will be. And it's good to know what those needs are versus their wants. And it also depends upon what uh, their, their, their function in society is, right? Because you're, if your character's uh, a federal agent, they're their needs to function in society are slightly different than if your character is a construction worker. You know, they don't have to have, uh, they both have to have like a certain level of physical fitness and a level of awareness. So they have a certain level above the normal population for both jobs. But one is going to have to have probably a higher degree of psychological um, health in order to be able to carry a gun, which we would hope. And Um, the other one is going to have the most expensive pair of boots he can afford. Right. You know, so I mean, it's just, you know, whereas your federal agent might be running around on crappy footwear. So the function in society is different. So they're what their needs are, you know, the federal agent may not have a $250 pair of boots. The construction worker may have three. Right. Yeah. I mean, and also a lot of times if um, when I waited tables, most of the time there wasn't a single waitress on the floor that was wearing cheap shoes. Because yeah. you can't wear cheap cheap shoes and white tables long term. It'll kill you. Anybody's on their feet all day. Um, I only worked, I think, one job. No, no. 
actually, I, I, I just blocked out my whole stint in fast food when I was a teenager. Um, outside of the stint in fast food when I was a teenager, which is a job on your, completely on your feet the whole time you're doing it. But any job you're doing on your feet, you know, one of your needs is to invest in taking care of your feet or you will deeply regret it later. Yeah, I wore so, nursing shoes when I waited tables. Yeah. I I wore, the, the a lot of nurses wore um, the Dansko um those clogs, the professor, the dance go professional clogs, and those were our, that's what I wore. I went to a uh, medical supply uh, store, um, and uh, you couldn't buy everything in the store. They had like it was like uniform store, not me medical, but it was uniform store, and but they sold shoes to the regular public. But in order to get uniforms, you had to have a letter from your place of employment. Obviously, they wouldn't be selling cop uniforms to somebody off the street, um, but I went and got shoes that they recommend for nurses <clears throat> when I waited tables. Yeah. I mean, so you have to, if you got to figure out what's your character, when it comes to figuring out GMC, when it comes to figuring out wants and needs, because wants and needs are important as the building blocks for GMC, they, they've, especially the internal elements of it. Because if your character's not getting their wants and needs met, that's internal conflict right there. And and that that actually is common internal conflict is not getting your needs met. It is well, such sometimes such a want is an internal conflict, um, but sometimes a need can be an external conflict, especially if they're like in a survival situation. Yeah, um, well, uh, but, I, but needs I was thinking more along the lines of like um, needs for like love kind of thing. The, the unrequited love is a very common. I'm not getting my needs met in this relationship. Internal conflict trope um yeah but, but yeah but if if nature's pounding down on your head you know that definitely is affecting your survival survivability so um that that's definitely in the hierarchy of needs at the very base is shelter food so figuring out your character's wants and needs super important. i woke up salty this morning and plotted in my head a story about buck and lou Oh my god! I've plotted several. I don't. I mean, and the thing is, I I really do ship Buck Eddie, but I can't help the salt. And you wake up salty every day, so I don't know what you're talking about. I it was I was today. extra salty. I was. I'll say you woke up salty, salty today, like it's different. It was extra. I woke up and chose violence this morning. Okay. <laughs> what what Kira meant was I woke up salty, plus <laughs> plus. She wakes up salty every day. Um, but she doesn't usually violate, she doesn't usually even in her head violate her OTP. So there was definitely some extra <laughs> I do feel, um, I, I'm just, you know, I just, I, I have a whole bunch of 911 in progress. Um, but it's like, sometimes you just wake up mad. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes, it's sometimes it's not even the fandom that's not even the, the show that's making me mad or what's happened on the show. Not that I've enjoyed anything that's happened in season five, but it's the fandom more than anything that's pissing me off. And sometimes in the direction, like the direction I see Fick going and the, some of the tropes that are starting to emerge. Yeah. Some of the, sometimes, or just, just the tone in the fandom or sometimes the fandom just drives me bonkers. Sometimes I want to write something that just kind of double birds everybody. So, well, I did read a really toxic fic yesterday and, um, I don't want to talk about it. The actual fic, cause I don't want to call it out cause it will be really easy to find. Um, but, and it wasn't like Eddie bashing at all. Um, 
But what it did bring home to me is just how toxic that environment for the, the 118 can be. Yeah, I could. It can, I mean, it certainly can be, and people can certainly write it as being extra toxic. Like they can, you know, they can, they can take what was in canon and, you know, pour on a few degrees of it. Was extra, it was worse, and that's where we got the whole Bucks living in a tent at the corner of the parking lot <laughs> trope after the lawsuit thing. You know, one thing I hate about those fix, and this is just me, is that. Bobby will be a hell beast to Buck at work, right? And when Athena finds out, she just lectures him for it and doesn't leave him. She's all upset and pissed off about Buck being mistreated, but she keeps Bobby anyway. I'd be like, motherfucker, you need to go. Yeah, uh, some of them take the mistreatment to an extreme level. Right, um, yeah. And then they have Eddie and Buck get together. And Eddie is part of the mistreatment, and then they have Eddie and Buck together. And I'm like... See, this is a case of where if I buy this level of mistreatment, that Eddie needs, that Buck needs to move on and be banging Lou. I mean, that's just the way that is. So, um, so sometimes I think the fandom go in a weird direction with it, the tropes that people are kind of getting into, and it kind of, you know, and the or the fandom tone gets weird. Like, um, they developed this like, you know, super judgy gatekeeping thing like if you didn't like taylor you were a hell beast or something which is weird because at the time that this mentality emerged in the fandom we didn't have much more on taylor we, we have more on taylor now in season five but we didn't really in season four we didn't have much more on taylor actually no more on taylor than we have on anna and fandom pretty universally hated anna and by and large loved Taylor, which made no sense to me because what we did know about Taylor was loathsome. Yeah. Now, I actually did like the way they pivoted her in season four. I did enjoy where they went with her character, but I still can see the point that she was awful in season two. So the fact that people were so salty about people who didn't like Taylor, um, it was just like, wow, wow. Let's be careful about season five spoilers in the chat. Um, no problem. Just let's. I don't. We we kind of drift into spoiler territory. Um, anyway, but um, we'll try to give you a heads up verbally when we're getting into spoilers. If we do that verbally, but I can't. We can't give people a heads up if it's like in the chat. And people weirdly, people will get up in the morning and reread the entire podcast chat. So, yeah, maybe delete that thing that you wrote just for the people who will read who will read through the chat later um they, they spoiler barred it okay okay good thank that, that's cool thank you um <clears throat> oh no, no lou is lou is nothing like buck um why read the audio I, I i don't know why they read the chat without the audio because they couldn't have the audio because the audio is usually like months behind um on uploads because i'm lazy we're well, not lazy but it's just a lot of work apparently <laughs> sometimes sometimes the podcast chat like people really wonder what the fuck was going on during the podcast because of that's how i know people read the chat is because they'll comment on how odd the conversation was and they wonder what the hell was happening in the podcast um so gmc um well, I think I think conflict is the most important element for building plot, but mo to me, motivation and goals are the most important. Conflict is also important to your character for developing your character, particularly internal conflict. But you really need to understand the conflict element um, for your plot to have pace and tension. Um, but I think 
the motivation and the um, goals are really more integral all the way around to the character side of it. And if you aren't clear on that, what's going on with your character, what motivates them and what they're working towards. Um, because, because a person can have, two different people can have the exact same goal for completely different reasons, completely different motivations. So just knowing your character's goal is insufficient. It's really important to know why they're motivated for that goal. Um, let's do con- you also do conflict class. Focus. Mm-hmm. I tend to I tend to find it easier to talk about conflict, so I it's my sort of my go to to talk about it first. But I think we talk about conflict more than any of the others. So I think let's do that one last. We let's okay goals. Um, your goals uh, going into character creation or character manipulation. Um, when you're writing in fandom, when you're kind of shaping your character um, as you move through the story that you're creating, um, your transformative work. Uh, and it's, I think it's really important that you acknowledge that it's supposed to be transformative. Um, and a lot of times in fandom, I see people failing to meet that burden. Not because they tried, but because they don't consider it a personal goal for themselves. They aren't, they are rigid in their interpretation of characters and don't allow for growth. They will throw all of these things, these events and these consequences at their character. And at the end of the story, their character has not changed at all. And I think that boils down to the accusation of having written a character out of character. I've been accused of that. Um, because a lot of readers in fandom want fandom characters to be static. But that's not good craft. Or they want the character to wind up in the exact same place they wound up in canon. Which is not good craft. No, because in order to do that, it means that you have to have your character, regardless of what you put them through um, in your story, you have to have them continue to maintain the goals and motivations that they have in canon in order to take them to that same place, which means your character is unchanged by the stimulus you're putting through on them, which is terrible writing. And it doesn't have a point. So, you know, if you look at like external events that create goals um, for your character, uh, whether that just be survival, um, whether it's, unexpected information that shapes them because of a consequence like say for instance that your character gets some extremely bad news and it changes how they feel about an event or a person in their life this external information is acting on their on them how will it shape their goals how will it shape their desires will it impact their needs Let's look at the. Um, I think a great move, a great movie to look at that a lot of people have seen um, for external and internal motivators, and also internal and external goals, because there's a lot of external motivators at play. Um, okay. Is John Wick, especially the beginning of it, because okay. his internal and external motivators are in direct conflict at the beginning of the movie. Um, He's got external forces motivating him to act in one way, while his internal motivators 
are telling him to act in another way. Then they killed his little so, dog. So John Wick is a retired hitman, basically. Um, and he's married and his wife um, is cancer. I think it's cancer, yeah. She dies, and shortly after she dies, the last gift she'll ever she'll ever give him is delivered to his house, and it's a little dog, someone that he has to take care of. Um, and he left the hitman life behind. He buried, literally buried it in the basement, le- left it all behind. He's basically a sociopath. To yeah, to be to have this woman to have her to have and, this life with her, and even after she died he was determined to still be the man that she married. And he inadvertently comes across another sociopath. And that sociopath wants his car, of all things. And that sociopath follows him home with a bunch of friends and catches him unaware. Beats him and kills his dog and steals his car. Now, he has no idea what he's done. This young sociopath. He has no idea what hell he has unleashed. And when he goes to get the car chopped, he, the guy recognizes the car. It's a old, like a classic car. He recognizes it. And he asks him where he got it. And this kid brags about beating some old guy up. Or middle-aged guy up. And um, taking the car. And the guy in the chop shop punches him in the face. Because he knows what he's done. It's about to get fucking real. And it does. John wanted that small, intimate life that he built with his wife. And they took it from him. And they keep asking him throughout the film, does this mean you're back? Does this mean you're back? And then there's a moment where he's in the scene where this dude's, the father of this young sociopath threatening to kill him. And this dude thinks he's going to kill John Wick. And John, the whole scene, you can tell John is not, does not think for a moment he's going to die. Not a single moment does he think he's going to die in this scene. He's tied to a fucking chair. And he still, th- he, he doesn't, it doesn't even, it's clear. He has no anticipation that he might die in this film. And he, um, he goes, you know, people keep asking me if I'm back and I'm back and I think I am. And it was just like this fury, this rage wells up in him. And that conflict that he had between wanting that small life that he had with his wife and his old life dragging him back in seemed to kind of merge together. Mm-hmm. And he went from avenging just his dog, his sweet, cute, little, adorable dog, to avenging everything they took from him and what that dog represented. And all hell broke loose. And until that moment when hell broke loose, it was like, to me, the internal and external motivators for him were in direct conflict he did not want this life that these external forces were trying to pull him back into not deliberately pull him back into because they didn't this idiot didn't know what he was trying to do what he had done but he was still creating an external motivation right he was an external force creating um an impetus for action right it's like i'm i killed your dog what are you going to do about it right that's a as an external cause and effect kind of thing. So it creates an external force of motivation that was in direct opposition to what John's internal motivators were, what he wanted for himself, what he was motivated to do for his own life. And there's this moment when it just kind of all coalesced. Yeah. And it was epic. I mean, it was just like, you could see it and you could see it. I mean, it was visceral Yeah, and it was just like, Oh, fuck. And he tells that man, look, you just need to give me your son. 
he's the one tied to the chair and he's making demands on and you're like dude you just need to get he burned down that motherfucker's whole world and when he got his motivation internal and external going in the same direction he had a clear goal now he had a clear goal before that anyway but it was small it was focused but he was still in conflict with himself right and when he was no longer in conflict with himself his goal got much bigger I'm going to raise everything you love to the ground. No more conflict. And his internal that's conflict. That's exactly what he does. His internal conflict. <laughs> and you could see it. His internal conflict was gone. Because he was conflicted internally about the whole thing, right? And the, you, in terms of internal and external, in terms of John's motivations, his goals, his conflict, it, it's, a, it's an interesting study in internal and external forces. Especially the first half of that movie because once john's no longer um opposed within and within himself and once he you know it it you, you see less of the division between the internal and the external forces um but it's really clear the internal and external division in john wick because he this life he had before was so different from the life he had now and because of his love for his wife he was so desperately clinging to it and that was that's all internal conflict and that's internal motivation and it's an internal goal it's an intangible to be the man that she married right yeah that's all he wanted that he he wanted to keep that pride she had in him right and that's an intangible goal right and so the motivation for that and then they kick they just kicked over the hornet's nest and they kept kicking so they applied this external conflict and these external motivators kept coming until his goal changed because and at the end of the movie after he's burned everything to the ground and i mean literally he he left no fucking asshole unreamed i mean it was just like <laughs> that dude had nothing left not even his own life um <laughs> she took it all out um he's he breaks into a veterinarian clinic to treat himself because he's got a couple of wounds and there's this dog waiting to be put down and he steals the dog. Right. <laughs> and I was like, but it, it it's not about the theft. It's about the dog. He sees this dog who's overtly, it's clear he's being put down because of the breed. It's a pit bull. Um, he sees this dog in a cage and, it, and it's a pit bull. And you're thinking to yourself, does he see himself in that dog? And the answer is yes, he does. Takes that dog out of the cage, puts it on a leash, and walks right out of the vet clinic with it. And it's like a moment of acceptance. And really, God help the person who takes that dog from him. <laughs> it's just like, no. <laughs> and it's just like, it's this, um, it's a full circle moment. But it's, the, the circle closes really differently. Because the beginning of the circle is gentle and sweet. And that little puppy is just adorable and soft. And at the end, John's lost all of that. He's lost all of that softness that his wife brought into his life. And now he has this, he's sacked half a city, or at least half of a downtown dock. And he has this pit bull. Right. And I think it speaks to um his character that he saved the dog from being executed, but he also um, identified with its circumstances. He was in a cage of his own making and he was comfortable and happy in it. 
And then they destroyed it. And what they unleashed was a beast. I mean, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, the overall layer of this movie is a gun. Shoot him up. Kill everything that moves movie. But John Wick himself is really complicated as a character. Yeah. Now the first. sad and angry. Sad. I mean, he is. He, the grief he carries through most of the movie is tangible it is you can see it on him the the first two movies the the first movie by the way it's incredibly violent but it is the least violent of the series so if you the least violent of the series yeah by far um it also to me has the most complete storyline i i i don't feel like the I think you can give the the from from a GMC perspective. I feel like you can give the rest a miss, but the first two movies combined are kind of a masterclass in the application of external forces because they do apply, um, they leverage that decision the decisions John made in um, the first movie to for the application of external um, conflict in the second movie, which is he got out of the the hitman life. Um, he wasn't supposed to come back in. Well, in order to get his revenge, in order to achieve his goal, he basically undid that. He undid that decision and put himself back on the radar of the people who run this consortium of hitmen. And th- somebody had a marker that they could call on him, and they do. And that's that's the external conflict and the, and the impetus and the, and the motivator, the external motivator for the second movie. And so... The the second movie, the first two movies, in terms of um, if you can deal with the violence, in terms of the GMC, my biggest problem with the second movie is it felt incomplete. And then you get to the third movie, which I think is terrible. Um, but it, it is from a GMC perspective, I I find John Wick a fascinating character study because it is so clear. A lot of times, the line between external and internal is really blurry, and sometimes one of the six is missing like or it's all barely it's negligibly barely important in a plot but you can really mm-hmm. parse out all six in john wick and um i think it's just fascinating as a as a study for for gmc i mean and i i i enjoy the the first movie um and on a hot on a really shallow note keeney reeves is really fucking hot in john it is and i would say um this is a slight. This I won't. We'll, He's I won't, fire. I won't say. He is fucking fire. I won't say oh beyond this. But um, uh, after the returns for the 2016 presidential election came in, this is what my sister and I watched. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we handled. Fitting. This is how we handled Fitting. it. You know. Fitting. I really enjoy John Wick. Um, I never watched part two and part three. I meant to, but then sometimes I'll go years without watching a movie. Well, I, when when part two came out, I actually cautioned you not to watch part two because I felt like it was a kind of a cliffhanger. I ending. remember that it was kind of a cliffhanger ending, and and I thought that they, we needed to wait. They hadn't greenlit a part three yet at the time part two was released, so no one knew if there was going to be a part three, and it felt like it ended on kind of a cliffhanger. Um, and um, and then part three was terrible, in my opinion. So what I would say is a person who called in the marker, and this is just me. If I had a marker on somebody who just burned down half a city, I, I, leave, I think I'd sit on it. Leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? John owes this one, but John's not in a good place right now. Did you see what he did to New York? Or was it Chicago? I forget where it was. Did you see what he did? Let's just 
Let's just let the man be with his dog. Let's just leave it alone. Shao saying she doesn't need to see Parabellum. To me, Parabellum is best forgotten. Best forgotten. I thought it was dreadful. But yeah, John Wick as a character is fascinating. Yeah. Um, for a for a study it, of GMC, I mean, if you watch just the beginning of the movie, you can really, if you just really sit down, and parse what's going on with the character, why he's doing what he's doing, what the external and internal forces are that are coming into play. Um, and you, I, I, Kara mentioned earlier, don't don't always look at motivation as a positive thing because there are. There are, especially, you know, both internal and external motivators can be very negative. Um, example given earlier. I think especially external motivators can be super yeah, negative. But if you deal with tropes like internalized homophobia, that kind of motivation can be extremely negative, obviously. Yes. Um, so, and the, and sort of like um, the internal, we, we, we mentioned and talked in a podcast once about like the difference between, like you can have two people who have a goal to lose weight and one person's doing it because of societal pressure to be thin and one person's doing it to improve their health. And those motivations are completely different for the same goal. Right. Um, and that in one, you know, and actually both of them could have potentially negative motivators, but if you consider the societal, particularly societal pressure on women to look a certain way and the, that whole thing, that, that is both an external and internal motivating force um, as a as a as a you know as a motivator for losing weight can be very negative, both the internal and external side of that. So um, you know, you look at like some really old you know, action movies are often overlooked for this kind of characterization. Um, but there is a reason why that whole trope about killing a woman for motivation is so was was so prevalent in the eighties and nineties. Killing a woman to, to motivate a man, right? Um, it it's a trope for a reason. Uh, it, it was a very popular trope. Uh, one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, and I talked about it before because I I couldn't sleep one night and I watched it and Julie judged me about it. Anyways, one of my favorite movies is Commando, and it's got Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, and it's got a very young Alyssa Milano. She's like eight or nine. Alyssa so Rambo. Um, and yeah, I, I, I like Rambo too. Um, but Rambo has different motivations. Rambo is actually deep i mean it's deep um but commando um he's for he's former special forces and he's retired it's obvious like i guess it's it's a it's not said but it's clear that her mother is gone so he's her only parent he's retired from um special forces to raise his child and this dude wants him to do a mission and he takes the daughter to force hit the character to do this assassination mission and they think they have him under control but they don't and from the moment he gets free until the moment he picks up his daughter he has one single focus and that is her and absolutely no one who gets in his way survives it and so if you look at his motivation it's there's a it's external they they've taken his child he's going to go get his child fuck whatever you think i'm going to do because if you think about it each character has a each character should have a moment of fuck around and find out a breaking point and with john wick the final straw was the, was his puppy and people were kind of confused it's just the dog it's just the dog and no it wasn't it wasn't just the dog 
No. Number one, it's never just a dog, okay? Okay? As a dog mom, it's never just a fucking dog. And fuck you for saying so. But it was that puppy represented the love of his life. And they took it. They murdered his love. And then acted like it wasn't a big deal. Like he didn't have a right to be upset. And in Commando, they take his daughter. And then they're surprised when they lose control of this special forces operator. Uh, operator and then he comes for them and kills them all. Yeah. And, and, the taking the kid or taking the family is used as a as a motivator quite often in um in movies. Um and it's a good one. Because it 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 actually rings true to us because we feel like even if we don't know for sure, but it feels like that's something we think that um the criminal element would do would do would be to take somebody's kid to apply pressure, right? Um, it seems like something like the mob would do or like drug cartels would do or whatever. And so it seems like somebody would, would, would go that route. And so it, it kind of resonates as, and we know the length parents will go to, to protect their children. So one of the best moments in the, in the um, movie is the bad guy. There's two of them. One of them ends up being um, the main character, uh, a former operative on his special forces team. Um, tells the kid it'll be okay your your daddy's going to do what we want and then you can go home and she looks at him and she says my daddy's going to kill you <laughs> yep. and really really they should have put her out of the dock right in that moment and left right i mean everybody who abducts a kid it's a bad idea i mean in alien don't take ripley's aliens don't take ripley's kid <laughs> What are you thinking? Um, My mom was going to kill you. They would have just evacuated. <laughs> She's going to nuke your whole damn planet. They would have just tried to evacuate without destroying that queen and all of her little eggs. But no, they had to take Ripley's kid. And so. And they had to start something written. That's like, that's literally don't start done won't be done. Right. Um, in uh, the movie with uh, uh, Oliver Schwarzenegger and um, Jamie Lee Curtis were their spies. True lies. True lies. Yeah, lies. Take the kid in that one too. Um, it, you know, get that's always a good external motivator. Um, another one we see commonly, especially in action movies, is especially with this. This works especially with police, military, uh, federal agents, kind of thing. Is framing them for a crime, ruining their reputation. We saw that in the Negotiator. Um, I think that was in uh, the Losers as well, right? And the A Team. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, the struggle to 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 get back their name to to tango and cash yeah um that's also a common one is we're going to ruin your name your reputation and put you in prison yeah yeah <laughs> um <laughs> you know honestly you think that you know what dudes it'd be easier if you just killed those two guys because when they get out they're gonna fuck up all your shit right <laughs> you don't know what you're doing um there is it's i really enjoy those kinds of come to Jesus movies. Right. <laughs> the, the, I really do. There, there is something, <laughs> they make my day. There is something, the ones, especially for me, though, I find very satisfying are the ones where they framed these really competent, badass people for crimes. It's like, oh, you're, you're just going to get, so why do you frame the really competent, badass people? Why aren't you framing the incompetent idiots? Why are you guys ever going to learn? There's a moment in the Samuel L. Jackson version of Shaft, the first one, where they've taken his badge and he's like so you think i'm going to be less dangerous to you without a badge yeah okay motherfucker <laughs> right 
<laughs> take away is that how you really think that's gonna go? Take away his control <laughs> mechanism. Okay. <laughs> Just knock off the shackles and see what happens. But that really that really was a fuck around and find out moment. <laughs> You know, it's just like, what you, you dumb bastard. Um, in the- in Rambo, Rambo is a Vietnam vet, and it highlights how Vietnam vets were severely and overtly mistreated when they came home. And he goes to a small town to find a man he served with, and finds out that that man has has died, um, um, due to Agent Orange exposure something exposure some chemical exposure um in vietnam um and he's trying to leave he's just he's he's walking he doesn't have a vehicle he's just trying to leave and he gets pulled over by a cop and gets arrested and they fuck around and they find out and he gets loose and they're hunting him in the woods but and it it gets really bad and eventually his 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 commander shows up and um the sheriff is losing his shit he's an awful piece of shit um and he's losing it and he's like who is this guy who made this guy what in god's name and the commander says god didn't make rambo i did and the only reason they caught him is that his commander gets on the radio and asks him to come in it's honestly i i recommend the first movie the first rambo movie for characterization alone because john rambo is is full up on grief caused by war and mistreatment once he came home and an immense amount of loss that keeps piling on him there there seems to be no end to the grief that he's going to experience um and his reactions to the external forces on him are trained responses this is how he was trained to respond to a threat and it keeps happening over and over and over again until literally his only choice was to fight. So when you break your character down like that, sometimes if you're not careful and you don't have an exit plan, you will kind of stall out. Yeah. So if you're going to write your character um, being taken down such a, taken to a detrimental place, both emotionally and physically, you need to have an exit strategy before you ever start. You need to know how you're going to build them up and get them out. I think I could be said the same for John Wick. He's drowning in his grief. And he's content with it. And sometimes if you've got your character kind of mired deep in in um, an internal conflict like grief, um, one of the ways you can handle that is is to bring in a really uh, big external stressor, which could be a situation like something more like Rambo or Commando or something like that or it could be something like a natural disaster or you know something that 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 brings both external conflict as well as a, a source of external motivation a new baby that's a much, that's a much happier external motivator to bring into the mix <laughs> yeah i mean depending upon what what the source of the depression you've got your care why you got your character depressed um a new baby could work but sometimes a new baby could be Compile could be the it could be the external stressor, yeah. Um, and an external stressor can be good or bad. I mean, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. It doesn't have to be the most happy, exciting thing that's ever happened. It can just be, well, holy shit, what the fuck am I gonna do with this? Well, yeah, because stress stress <laughs> can be positive to a point, right? Because stress is in in, in its way, right. it's, it's an, a type of impetus for action. Right? 
um, I mean, there can be positive. You could, you could even think of it as positive tension, right? You, and that you could be bringing that to the table. Um, I had this weird dream about nine one one. I'm considering writing it. I'm considering writing it. Um, so I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details because I know how that works out. Anyways, I dreamt that there was an alien invasion, and Eddie um, was part of he was in the army and he was once given a brief that if something big ever happened that he should take whatever he can and whoever he can and go to Colorado Springs. And he doesn't know why he just, that's what he was told to do. And so when aliens invade, he packs up everybody he can and takes them to Colorado Springs. I like it. So it was a really interesting dream to have. And, um, I don't know what I would do with it, but I but I like the the idea of it. Um, and if any of you write it, I'm going to publicly call you out and call you an asshole. <laughs> my dreams are my dreams, damn it. Stay out of them. Um, somebody had asked a question earlier, but I, I copied it, copied it, but I forgot to copy who said it so the question was i've been thinking of gmc as what they want why they want it and what's keeping them from having it um and then would that be a good general description of it goal what they want um i think the, I th the one that i'm tripping over the most is what's keeping them from having it because conflict um doesn't have to be bad um so conflict is not necessarily what's in the way of your goal um Conflict in its way is essential, um, but conflict is what's kind of... And sometimes conflict can be generated because of your goal. Right, because your character wants a thing and, you know, so sometimes it could... They're creating conflict in their way. Right, so it could be that, you're, that the conflict is keeping your character from having their goal, but the conflict could be what is actually created the goal. So conflict doesn't necessarily standing in the way of your character achieving their goal. Um, but you do have to build conflict. You, your character, if you're, unless you're writing 5k, you don't want a straight path to your character's goal. So you are going to have to build in some obstacles, um, which I guess obstacles potentially are external conflict. Um, so simplistically, yes, but the problem with the, we've talked before about the problem with trying to distill things down into neat packages like that is that then when you have a situation that doesn't fit in that neat little trite package, you feel like you're outside of GMC and that's not the case. And you stumble. And I hate to use this word because it's fast becoming a dirty word. You lose nuance. Yeah. So it is um, also goals aren't necessarily what somebody wants, right? Because Goals are not always driven by want. Um, if your character is in a desperate need-based situation, their goal may be entirely survival-based. So this is where a case of where simplistically, yes, I would agree with that on the surface. But we talked about when you distill things down into trite, simple packages, it leaves off part. And that's where you wind up stumbling later because, you know, start in the middle or um, what was that one that we're talking about? Oh, write what you know. You know, it's like people give this quick advice, quick pithy quotes that leave off the important bit. Like 
you know, Kira distilled down, write what you know to learn what you can and then write what you know. Because write what you know, I mean, most of us are not going to be writing what we're actually writing if we only write what we know. It's a very narrow window to write in. Um, it doesn't speak to the human experience. Right. It doesn't, ex it doesn't speak to the imagination um, or the spirit of craft. Yeah. So I would say there are writing sites that will try to distill down GMC to just about that, to what they want, why they want it, what's in their way. Um, okay. But like I said, there are very rare times when things are just clear cut black and white when it comes to writing. And I feel like every time I'm, I, it's rare that I sit down and plot anything of any substance with somebody where we're not in some kind of corner case. Like, well, okay, this is a little outside the norm for... And because every story should have corner cases, right? You shouldn't be on a straight, tried and true path that, is, you know, that somebody's already been on. You should be off doing your own thing. And um, so, yeah, you should have corner cases. Um, and your characters are... Like I said, GMC is also not linear. So because it's in intertwined and it's nuanced and it's going to evolve as your character moves through your, through the story narrative. And as they learn things, right. as other characters act upon them and give them information, their goals and their conflicts and their responses to these goals and conflicts should change. It should be shaped by um, a mixture of events just as you are as a human being. And this is how you create a real life human being in the narrative of your work so that your character is vivid to, to the reader. And that should be true of characters in fandom that you're borrowing or your original characters. You need to give them room to breathe and you need to give them the ability to do so. Yeah. So when you're using your fandom characters, because most fandom characters are, are not, um, well flushed out fleshed out on on this front and so you have to do that in your writing or they're contradictory and when there's contradictions you have to resolve those contradictions and say you know i'm gonna set this piece that doesn't make a lot of sense like one of the most contradicted characters i ever saw in in, in canon was tony Donozo. um they couldn't make up their mind how they were going to portray him from episode to episode um from you know super competent to blithering idiot and that level of contradiction doesn't make a lot of sense except that a different writer and no serious no character bible um episode to episode so you have a, so you have one writer who you know you probably have five different writers who perceive him a different way slightly and they're barely comparing notes and that's how that comes about but for the for the person absorbing this feels very contradictory so when you're writing a character like that you have to resolve those contradictions and and the way you do that is to build an internally consistent character you do the work you do the character work and you you you, you have to set aside some pieces that don't make a lot of sense um and then keep the parts that do make sense you know and and you typically kind of have to keep all the parts that kind of gel together um yeah so anyway you just you have to build even a fandom character, you have to sit down and figure out what makes them tick, so that you so that you understand the character. Because even some of the best fleshed out characters on screen still often are more two dimensional than what a writer can work with. Star just reminded me of the last Starfighter. Yeah, 
I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking life model <laughs> decoy, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, um, so it's important. There are some writers who, um, I've read their stories who will try to keep all those elements of Tony in their story. And it just rings as contradictory and hollow as the show. Why would you do that? But then I see writers who throw out everything about him from the show. And then it doesn't read like Tony at all. So, you know, I, you got to strike a balance when you're using an established character that people know of, of at least keeping something recognizable about them. It can be um, daunting to move your character past canon circumstances when you first get started in fandom. Um, readers often... Um, don't respond well. You'll have that one reader who'll be like, just bent over what you've done. Um, and a lot of times that that anger will come at you with a different complaint. Like, they'll be pissed off that you've moved Tony off Gibbs's team while Gibbs was in Mexico having his um, siesta um, and given him his own team and put him in a, a different unit and given him a love interest. But instead of complaining about the deconstruction you've done on on the show on the plot they'll complain about the love interest that you introduce really late in the story right jilly right <laughs> jilly wrote a story called de novo which is excellent you should go read it where tony during the um gibbs's hiatus um jenny shepherd realizes that she's making some big mistakes and so she separates tony from uh ziva and tony and uh tim and brings in Mike Wepler, who is a fucking fantastic character. Um, I borrowed him for a general mention in one of my Hawaii Five-O fix. And uh, Tony gets his own squad. And gets Ian Edgerton as a love interest. Now tell them about your feedback. <laughs> well, I mean... I Holy shit, I need to save that picture. Oh my god. I think that's from La Bamba. Where did you get this? Um, I love it. <laughs> it um, the feedback I got was that... Uh, it was um, it was out of the blue, um, and it just it came out of nowhere. It didn't fit the story, and that they know I could do better. That's so fucking patronizing, and also it's weird because you know honestly that is exactly how relationships. Yeah, happen. I mean the thing is, <laughs> like in reality, that is exactly how relationships. The funny thing happen. is when I if the story was up on EAD up to the point where he met his love interest because I got stalled there. Um, but because the love interest at the point at which I had plotted a story, who the love interest was, I had a list of potential love interests. It, it wasn't actually germane up to the point that he met the love interest, who it was. But I knew where they had met, that they had met when he was at Fletzy. I knew that he was going to run into the, this person was not hitting right into, but he was going to see, this person was going to see him when he visited the BAU. So I had all the components, but at the moment at which Tony was going to finally, this person was going to come and seek Tony out. And I did wind up picking Ian. Um, I, I, I hadn't picked who it was. So I had to stop writing because I mean, at that point it became very relevant who it was because I had to, the details now matter because now Ian's characterization matters, right? At that, up to that point, only Tony's characterization mattered because Ian wasn't in the story at all. And, but sometimes, and the, and I wanted, it was like the least convenient time for Tony to fall, to get a love interest was at the moment that he, in the middle of this huge case that he's working, it's the least convenient time for an old flame to drop back into his life. 
But that's the way life is sometimes, is it's inconvenient. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted him to be making, to be put in the position of making affirmative, positive choices for himself, to do it for his career and then to do it for his personal life. Because those are two things he gave up working for Gibbs. It's making positive professional choices and positive personal choices. And I wanted him to make both Mm -hmm. in the story. And so both were illustrating him having turned a corner in his thinking about his own life. And life is messy and inconvenient. Um, And so it was, it was, it was exactly the way I was going for it with him because it was hitting him upside the head at an inconvenient time. Um, It was, you know, if he was still on Team Gibbs, there's no way he'd have picked up a relationship with a little of a case. But he made different choices for himself. If he'd have been on stick Team Gibbs, he wouldn't have even been home when he came right. the door. He'd have been sleeping <laughs> at his desk. You know, and Tony makes different choices for his people in that story. He makes different choices as a boss than Gibbs made. So it was all... So each each time he had to make a choice to be like Gibbs or to be Tony, I wanted him to, at the, at the moment, because Jenny Shepard asked him a really pivotal question early in the, in the um, story, which is, are you Gibbs senior field agent or are you a federal agent pursuing justice for um, victims of crimes in the, in the Navy and the Marines? And it hit him hard that he had, was perceiving himself more as, team Gibbs than a federal agent who is there to do a job. And he made a choice that he was, and she asked him to make a choice. Are you, are you here for Gibbs or are you here to be, do this work? And he made the choice to be there to do the work. I think that's an interesting question to come from her because when we first meet her, she made that decision too. Mm -hmm. Was she at NCIS for Gibbs or was she at NCIS to to do the job? Um, and she walked away from Gibbs. And that was framed. Like that right. was a negative well, I think thing. the healthiest thing you can do in that show is walk <laughs> away from Gibbs. It's not like a walk, walk away from Gibbs. Yeah. Um, so it, in that affirmative choice, it was not a one-time thing. That's something. And in the sequel, which is something I'm very slowly working on, um, it it's not that he has to keep making that choice, but it's like he has to keep undoing the damage he has to, he's still finding remnants of the damage of that time because the number of years he spent slowly having his thought processes corrupted away from I'm a federal agent here to do a job versus I'm Gibbs go-to guy. That's two completely different things. I mean, that's an epic amount of gaslighting, right? right? But someone said in the chat room that Jenny was at NCIS for avenging her father. That's not true. Jenny was all Jenny had been an agent for years. She became the director with the goal of, of revenging her father, but she'd been at NCIS for years. Her and Gibbs were partners at one time. So yes, she allowed revenge to shape her going into that job, but that wasn't why she was on the job. And it's also unclear how much um, her behavior was affected by the brain tumor. That It's because it's unclear when that began affecting her. Was it already affecting her when she became the director? Um, is that why she was paranoid about her father's yeah, death? Is that why she couldn't accept the reality of her father's death? Um, so there's there's a lot of 
you can turn that in a lot of interesting and different ways if you want to. But I think a lot of times NCIS writers, and I've done it too, vilify Jenny Shepard. Um, deserved or not. So, but yeah, I mean, her her desire for revenge was immense. That was that was her her motivation. Um, and killing the frog was her goal. Yeah, which is why in um, De Novo, it, one of the first things you find out is the frog is already dead, and she is it. She's put her in a position of reevaluating what the hell she's doing, because it's like her everything she's been working for, which was to get close to him to kill him, has been undercut, and now she has to figure out what she's doing with her life, and she decides to make the most of the life she has and her time as director is, uh, you know, and to try to be a good director. And so when she turns her attention to her actual job is when she starts seeing the problems and starts trying to be a force to, to positive force in the agency rather than, you know, neutral to negative force. And, but when it comes to Tony's motivation and his goals, it is not, because like I said, it's not, it's not linear. It's not one and done. And it's not a straight path for people, especially when it comes to things like undoing gaslighting and abuse. It takes time. And with somebody like um, Tony learning, doing things differently and coming up against the, the mantra of that's not the way Gibbs did things, um, he has to keep making that affirmative choice to choose to be, you know, an investigator first. Those episodes were awful because he was vilified for not doing it the way Gibbs did it and then vilified for doing it the way Gibbs did it. I would have been like, you know what? Fuck you. Right? And fuck Gibbs too. And then told he wasn't, didn't deserve his own team. I mean, at the end of the whole thing. Um, it was like those episodes felt like they were served no purpose but to cut Tony down, which I think is why... I think a healthy choice when he'd have walked in and seen that box of his stuff on that desk, he'd have picked that box up right. and walked out with so, it. Okay, bye. Yeah, I'm done. So if when it comes to if if part of your character is the trainee sticker would have had me and human right. resources, but when it comes to something like gaslighting as a as an exter as an external motivator, um, that's one of those things that it, for start obviously that's. A negative external motivator but it creates um it can create negative internal forces at play that take time to undo so i mean you don't want to when you're writing you don't want your character to be going around the the same thing i mean that's one of the, one of the mistakes i see people make when they're trying to show character growth is they show they want to show that change doesn't happen overnight so they have the character stumble over the same thing 50 times that's tedious as fuck. Um, but there are ways to show that it's not a straight path to better without just showing them making the same mistake repeatedly. Which, you know, when you look at like Harry Potter, which every, every fucking um, book has negative external conflict and negative, negative external motivators for Harry, right? these engineered confrontations with Dumbledore, not Dumbledore, well, Dumbledore too, but with Voldemort are, um, that's negative motivators, right? They're negative external forces. Um, and so now from a writer perspective, you could break that down and acknowledge that these impressions you're left with in the characterization is because of formula plotting. Yeah. In the Very. genre. Barry. I mean, the only book, the only book that was really um, different in terms of the formula was Prisoner of Azkaban, in terms of not yeah. having the, you know, 
the manufactured I mean, it's clear that the author is manufacturing these events, but it comes off in the narrative like Dumbledore is doing right. it. I mean, she was trying to portray, she was trying to make Dumbledore like good, mentally, grandfatherly wizards kind of guy when he just came off as a manipulative old, yeah. And awful. And yeah, gaslighting after a fashion. I mean, and we—he's definitely kind of the behavior towards Harry is bordering on grooming. Oh yeah, I mean, he Harry was groomed from the start to protect the magical world, no matter the sacrifices he had to make up and into and including his own life. From the very start, that was made clear to Harry. Clear. I mean, it was it was clear from the very beginning that. They expected him to sacrifice repeatedly for them. It's just, it's really ugly. So it's, I think one of the things that when I, when I find a Harry Potter story that I really like, it's when Harry, because the problem with most Harry Potter that I've read, Harry Potter fan fiction that I've read, is that because the, the external forces around Harry are all so negative, Harry's internal forces often wind up coming off really negative as well. He's not making any assertive, positive reactions for himself well, harry's reactive in, ca in canon very canon. he's very reactive in canon and so i like to write him proactive absolutely. in my own work to me that's fixing a place of reaction is not to me that's a character fix it when people empower harry to take all the, those negative external forces and turn them into a proactive positive impetus for action he's going to do something positive he's going to take charge of his life whatever that is the kind of stuff i like to read but just you know him reacting um because just because basically his goal in every fucking book is to survive and to spend as little time as possible with his family right i mean those are i mean if you if you look at the root the root of harry potter's motivation is to not be around the dursleys and he's willing to endure practically anything to avoid being in that house on Privet Drive. You see it year after year after year. That boy never once asked to go home and he was tortured by a teacher fifth year. Think about it. Um because where I find that where I find that John Wick is like a master class in GMC, Harry Potter is almost like cut and paste. You know, it's like mm. just don't do it this way. Because it's it you could do it once, but when you do it seven times, um, it becomes starts to come across tragic and borderline pathetic. It's like that. It's yeah, it's it's on the author's part, but from the character, it's like, dude, like do something positive for yourself, which is why I really like proactive Harry as as a character fix it trope, where he's doing something, even if he's going out and murdering fifty people. Hey, at least it's proactive. I think it was upward of right. 80, actually, but that's, that's beside, beside the, the point. point. They weren't all but, very skilled. <laughs> you know, I mean, as it, I think Winky might have won but, the total. Like, I think she might have had the, right? had the best but after story. after seven books of, and seven movies, because I went, I did, I got, I got, well, eight movies. So eight movies. It was eight seven, movies. Seven, yeah. Seven, <laughs> 15 rounds of this. And I, I got them all. Um, of, him his 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 goal be not the dursleys and uh, come try to survive this and save the wizarding world if i can i mean that i mean that's very base right in terms of maslow's hierarchy of needs we're like at the bottom so yeah when you get I mean, you go 
Okay, Siri, I'm not talking to you. Um, but when you talk about that, <laughs> when you're talking about after s seven books of that, okay, I don't want to read a story where it's the same thing, where he's just trying to avoid his family and survive Voldemort. Okay, we've been that because it's not about the plot being the same. You guys are thinking about is the character coming across the same? If he's just trying to avoid another summer with the Dursleys. And trying to survive a competition of all. I don't. I don't feel like Harry Potter ever no. grew up. It all. No. In it, the it books, all, anyway. And the thing is, it, well, he was. He's in this weird limbo. He never had an actual childhood, but he also never had an opportunity to mature. Right. So, his character was very stagnant in the books in terms of his motivations. GMC. His GMC is as stagnant as it could possibly be for a successful book franchise. Now, I don't. I'm not saying that to write anybody's love of like Harry Potter fan fiction because I actually think one of the reasons why Harry Potter fan fiction is what it is is because we see the flaws and we talked about when you've got compelling characters and then flaws in the canon, that is where fandom launches itself. Right. Yeah. Right. Flawed Always. canon, compelling characters. If you look at the biggest fandoms on Ao3, you're going to see that. Compelling characters and right. fucked up plots. If you've got a really tight plot and compelling characters, you'll see a little bit of engagement with people just wanting to keep on with the characters, but not. it's not going to be a lot because people are going to be happy with the canon. If you've got boring characters in a tight canon, there's going to be nothing. People are just not going to care. They might take the world and put some more interesting characters in it. We see a lot of growth for Rodney McKay in, in Atlantis. We see a lot of growth from him, starting in SG one all the way up through the end of season five. Um, but we don't see a lot of growth for characters like John Shepard, um, Sam Carter, uh, Jack O'Neill. Uh, Daniel Jackson has some serious growth as well. Uh, he goes from, uh, and it's not it's not just a personality growth it's a physical growth he goes from being a soft scientist to being quite competent in the field as a, um, as a soldier both can both rodney and daniel do um so it's interesting to see how there are static characters in stargate and how there are characters that that grew and you you want to ask yourself okay was that the actor pushing that or or what or does it boil down to that nerd fantasy that they revealed themselves to have when they ca when they cast um, Jewel State and and paired her um, with Rodney McKay? Because they said that was pure cheerleader right. fantasy come true. Jack was deeply flawed from the very start from from the movie. Great character, but flawed. And movie Jack reading. and TV Jack very different though. Um. Very. Movie Jack was stoic and um, didn't have much of a sense of humor. Uh, was angry in his grief. Whereas TV Jack is quiet in his grief. But we don't see Jack O'Neill moving on. No. Actually, Not really. About Jack O'Neill. We don't see him growing as a character don't much. We don't we see him actually talking in canon about how it's hard for him to let go of... Oh, God, isn't there an episode where he talks about Jack is mature? In the, in, movie. In the movie. I would agree. But Jack in the TV show... Um, 
Not think, so much. I think he... Um, well, not, he's not immature, because he does his job. He does his job very well. He can be serious when he wants to be. But there's a playfulness in Richard Dean Anderson's version of Jack O'Neill that we don't yeah. see. They actually, they had to, they kind of retcon. So that, to me, there's two completely different characters. Like, I think, didn't they actually spell their names differently? Yeah. The, yeah. With two L's for that uh, the one on the yeah. show has two L's. two L's. Yeah. Um, I don't think Jack O'Neill. Yeah, he did. It, it allowed it himself. Was in canon that he he couldn't get past his um like distrust and dislike of Russians because of his military past. I don't remember what episode that was mm-hmm. in. Um, well, there were a couple episodes with Russians. Um, and I can see how that would be a stumbling block. I mean, he sense. comes across a, a few times, not not always, but basically, Jack brought the inherent. Um, um, Xeno- he it's like he represented. He was the voice of the xenophobic American to the team, and Daniel was his counter. Now, Jack, mm-hmm. Jack, Jack changed in in some ways, but he never really he got better at something. He never really moved on from the things that held him back. I think is the issue with him. I like Jack O'Neill as a character. Don't get me wrong. I I don't think you'll ever see me write him in a negative fashion. No, I like him too, but I really, I was honestly disappointed by the end of the series that he never really allowed himself to have love again. I think that ultimately he was punishing himself for the accidental death of his son. And he never forgave himself for it. He, it isn't about comparing him to other characters. It's about his own growth and lack of. Uh, he wasn't, I mean, he came home as the incident was happening. So ever how that ever, how Charlie got that gun was not Jack's fault. Jack comes home from a mission. He walks into the yard. He asks his wife, where's Charlie? And she says, he's running around somewhere. And then there's a gunshot in the background. And yet, he blames himself because it was his service revolver that Charlie was playing with. How did he get that yeah. gun? Where was that gun in the house? But they Why was may, it loaded? And, and I think it would be a moment that a parent could get stuck in. So, and, and, so I understand it. I'm not critical of Jack's character for being stuck. Um, and this, But I think one of the reasons why fan fiction writers often write him moving on romantically is because whether they can analyze it and parse it out this way or not, that is one of the things they sense is Jack O'Neill in canon was stuck in his son's death. He did his duty, um, sometimes begrudgingly, but he did his duty as a, as a, as a military officer, but he did not move on emotionally from that death. Not really. I think it took him actually quite a long time to move on from surviving the Abydos mm-hmm. mission. Cause he fully intended not to. So, when I wrote Sentinels of Atlantis and Jack came to the realization of, of how Charlie might have gotten that gun and why he would have gotten it. Um, I thought like that was an important moment in his characterization and his trajectory it in was, Sentinels of Atlantis yeah. that he acknowledged um, that, uh, that Charlie's death was no one's fault. That there were forces um, at play um, that, it was just the circumstances that they all had to deal with. Um, and also, I wanted to highlight Sarah um, in that particular episode of Sentinels of Atlantis. Um, she speaks to, sometimes she hears him 
in the house. And that was, for me, that was a, a little nod to the psionic plane. But also to point out that as a mother, she's haunted by the loss of her son. So you're left to wonder if she's actually hearing him. If he was a latent sentinel, is she hearing him moving around the house? If he's part of the psionic plane, or if it's just because she's haunted by the loss of him. And I didn't answer the question either way in the narrative because that wasn't the point. For me, if Jack was living in that house, it would be sense memories. Um, but for Sarah, it's emotional connections and memories um, that her house you know, is basically a living memory of her son one way or another. And so having those moments with your characters and letting them have that growth, even painful growth, is, is important for GMC. It shapes them and creates transformative circumstances. Um, so you don't want a character to be static from start to finish. And it's not just about changing their circumstances or changing their relationships. It's about creating a dynamic, visceral change in them through the accomplishment or the failure of their goal because you can't win everything yeah sometimes you lose and sometimes you learn more in your failures than you do your successes no wait stop you always lose learn more in your failures than you do your successes because sometimes your successes kind of blur together but your failures linger in your brain forever and you analyze them beyond comprehension so when I'm putting together a plot and I'm thinking about my characters and the journey I want to take them on, on both, you know, narratively and emotionally and mentally, it's about um, that growth and about recognizing where they are in the circumstances that I put them down in and where I want them to end up at the end. When I wrote All the World, you meet Harry and Hermione in a moment where they are living in absolute misery. They're being held hostage by their own magic. And outside forces act on those circumstances in the form of Ragnarok and Lenore. And at the end of all the world, Harry and Hermione are living in a dimensional pocket, Agarti. They are part of the Diverger Horde. They have two children. Um, and Harry's biggest goal for the day is the Garden Gnome Rebellion. That is literally his goal for the day, to fight Garden Gnomes with his five-year-old son. And so that was their journey. Yeah, yeah, and, and eat war porridge, of course. <laughs> and honestly, all the world has the most satisfying ending for me of all the fics that I've written. Sometimes I will just go read the, um, the epilogue. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, I don't, it's it just, it really, and I don't often even write an epilogue, to be honest. I usually, I write an epilogue when I have no intention of ever writing a sequel, and I don't want to talk about it ever again. <laughs> so please don't ask me for a sequel, because I wrote an epilogue, you don't get, you don't get a sequel. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that was the journey that they went on, and they were, um, their lives and circumstances changed because of somebody else's actions and the acceptance of duty in a different way. Yeah, no winged babies. Yeah. But garden on rebellions and siege engines. <laughs> the 
Sage Engine makes me laugh every time. <laughs> Can you imagine a garden nose with a Sage Engine? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it ends oh, a very, um, like you said, a very dark beginning with such a hopeful and light and sweet end. Which, I mean, if you're going to do time travel, fix it on something that is so bleak. That's kind of what you want. <laughs> right. Or to kill a bunch of people, one or the other. <laughs> one of the two. But even in Darkly Loyal, they have a yeah. sweet ending. They have babies. She's pregnant. Winky and Dobby have babies. <laughs> they went to war so they could settle down and have some babies. <laughs> After the war was over, they settled down and had some babies. <laughs> Winky meant business. <laughs> they gave her a goal and she accomplished it. But when it, you know, when it comes to developing your character, you need to understand what motivates them, blah, 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 and, you know, and what they're calling. So there's, there's an element of just developing GMC around a character, like what their backstory is and all that jazz, and then understanding how it feeds into the GMC for your plot. And then there's the working up to a GMC for your story, which is a little bit different than just working out your character work but to me you have to do the character work first and honestly uh and your character needs to fit the needs of your story of course but you don't want to come off contrived like this character perfectly fits this situation um and that which would be there's no they have no obstacles no there's nothing there's no conflict they're able to swat away every um i read a harry potter story once where um, every obstacle that was thrown at them. And the, and the author did try to write obstacles, but they weren't actually obstacles. I mean, Harry had already learned the magical skill necessary to defeat that obstacle, and he just swatted them all away, basically. And it was like, and it was like, they happened like, you know, like probably 20 times that there's an obstacle thrown on Harry's path, Harry's path, <laughs> where he just swats it away because he's already learned this, you know, before the story ever began. It's like, it, so it felt a little like masturbatory, right? Like, this is supposed to be the, the 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 rising action part of the story, but it just felt like going round and round the same horse. Dumbledore throws an obstacle at Harry, and Harry swats it away. Um, that's not conflict. That's more like, right? It was wank, wank. right? Sorry, it was it was sorry. It was um wank. Harry Potter's magical ability wank. Um, so. You want to understand your character before, and this whether you're a plotter or a pantser, you want to understand your character. Um, I, I talked to somebody one day who felt like the pantsers didn't have to do like, work out who they're what, what's going on with their characters. I was like, uh, know your care, know your character. Yeah, they I mean, do. I, I don't, I, I can't get behind that. I mean, a successful pantser is a good writer if they understand and know their characters. And just, I'm going to sit down not understanding any of my characters, especially my main characters. Yeah, you can do that right? if you don't want to be competent. <laughs> if you want to be on the USS What the Fuck and the Continent of Competent is out of your scope, <laughs> you go right ahead and do that. <laughs> I, it's, it's important to acknowledge a pantser's process. I don't do it, but they, you do have a process and it would be rude to ignore it. Um, or to say that it doesn't have as much value as a plotter's process, because it does. You get, I mean, pantsers, if you get it accomplished, you get it accomplished. Whether you're doing the work in the front or in the I back. I bring up pant. Yeah, That's not right? really dirty. <laughs> That's not what well, I meant. I like it. Um, <laughs> we'll, say, we'll do it in the front or at the end. How's that? 
Um, but you do, you do, you do your work in the back if you want. Um, but I bring up cancers frequently because I don't want people to think that craft only applies to plotters. And I've been told several times that they feel like that the podcast, it, they don't, you know, they don't listen to the craft podcast because it's not for pantsers. There are elements we talk about that are specifically about plotting, but elements of craft, pantsers aren't exempted from that. Now, I do know pantsers, and I've talked to them, who think that they are exempted from all elements of craft. And that's fine. You're not the pantser I'm talking to. But I, I would, I feel like I would be an <laughs> asshole to just exempt all pantsers process from anything we talk about because it's not how I work. I know plenty of pantsers who do character profiles I, and understand their characters. They just don't work out a plot ahead of time. It could be said that, I mean, when I do a zero draft, that's really, I guess, as close as I get to the pantsing experience. When I'm putting my events together and, I, I, you know, it, it has to come from somewhere, right? It's, it's coming out of me. It's a product of my mind. It's a product of my brain. I am putting this together. I am making this structure for my story with my zero draft. And I think that that's as close as I get to pantsing because that's where I'm putting in my, my plot points, my characterization, my consequences, my ripple management. Um, whereas a pantser takes that moment when I'm zero drafting and they start writing, which is, feels really difficult for me to have to do something like my, that i mean i agree with you i think that the plotting the planning stage is my pantsing process that's where i'm working out the story right i just don't show it to anybody in that stage um some pantsers do show it. some pantsers don't show it to anybody in that stage some pantsers do but my the difference i think between a plotter and a pantser is pantsers are okay with getting to a roadblock in the middle of the writing process and I prefer to know that roadblock before I start, sit down, start writing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I am dedicated to my zero draft process. And I, if I have a little idea, I'll have three or four plot points. I'll write those down in my little notebook um, and I'll go do a little short K, 5K story. But I'm going to give you an example. I have a story that's actually going to end up being my entry for the Big Moxie quarter one. Um, it's a canon divergent story where Buck goes undercover instead of for the lawsuit situation. Um, and I originally wrote it and I had 10 plot points. So I'm thinking probably in the range of 20K. Then I got to plot point four and I was already at 20K. I am on chapter nine as of today and I've written 49,000 words. And I'm still, I'm on plot point seven. <laughs> I'm still using the same 10 plot points, right? But it's, it's kind of like riding the battle of the five armies. It's a plot. Some of, point. Some of, some of the plot. <laughs> some of your plot like, events were very broad. Um, and sometimes, right, it's, right. sometimes it's more detailed, and sometimes it's sketched out roughly. And um, I do have that as a plot point. I do, but it wouldn't be. See, that's a huge plot point. That's actually probably two yeah. or three chapters. That's sort of like any court scene. Sometimes I'll do that. I'll like put down as a plot event court a court scene. That's that's going to probably be long mm. for me. Um, <laughs> Difference on the right. fandom too, right? Because if it's Harry Goodbye. Potter, right? Eight K, nine K, in three chapters. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that I, when it comes to things like understanding GMC, I don't, I don't automatically assume that pantsers 
don't need to know GMC. Some pantsers may choose not to care about it, but some plotters. I think they choose some, not to acknowledge it. Some plotters make the same choice. So it is not, I don't think that's a plotter mm. versus pantser thing, but I do think the application is different. But when it comes to character profiles and character development, it's one of the things that I just do not get not doing in advance. Is not If you know what your characters you're working with are, the only the only exception would be is if you don't know what characters you're going to have, right? But if you know who your main characters are, why would you wait to to define your character? I I just I mean I can't wrap my brain around that thought process, but but I do know I do, I have known writers who would sit down at a typewriter or later on a computer and have zero idea what they were going to write about. They wouldn't know the genre, they wouldn't know the characters, they would just start writing stream of consciousness and see what happened and eventually several months later they would have a fucking book and i'd be like yeah i mean i've done free writing stuff like that too but it, it's probably not something i seek out um but basically i've also and i've said I've, I've there we have a lot of pantsers who participate in just right and who ask craft questions and apply it to their process in a way that makes sense for them. But I do also talk to pantsers who feel like nothing about craft applies to them and they use pantsing as an excuse for that. Oh, well, I'm a, yeah. Oh, I'm a pantser, but none of that applies to me. I'm like, <laughs> you know, the rest of the pantsers think you're giving them a bad name. But, okay. but also, good news yeah, for it you, does. it all applies to you. Every bit of it. Whether you do it in the front or whether you do it in the back, and I'm going to own it. If, you, if you're going to take it from the back, then you need to know these things if you want to be a good writer. And a good writer is a writer who accomplishes something with their work, finishes it, and they've written something transformative, whether it's original or not. Your work should always be transformative. You are, as a writer, a part of an amazing fabric that, is wo that has been weaving through our world since storytelling began in the cave. Okay, we have been telling each other stories since the cave. You can see it in their art, in the things that they made. They've been, we, it's, it's always been here. And your words and stories are being weaved in that same fabric that those people created. And they'll be, they'll survive you. And for me as a writer, I want that legacy as a writer to be, say, okay, she never stopped learning. She never stopped growing as a writer. And she cared about the words that she put out into the world. And if you don't care about your words like that, then none of this really applies to you. And that's just, that's just straight up. I want to be a positive and beautiful part of that fabric. I want to tell stories that are moving and romantic and thoughtful and engaging and entertaining. I'm sorry, Kate. I didn't mean to make you cry. <laughs> this is why I say writers are born. And I mean it. That innate desire to create, to make, to be a maker of things, to be a maker of characters and stories. It, that's an immense gift you've been given. And whether you are a plotter or a pantser or a plotser, if you're kind of in between... Honing those skills and developing your craft is the least you owe yourself. It's the very least you owe yourself. Because terms like 
plotter and pantser and plusser and whatever else I come up with next year, um, in the end, it's not the important part. That creative drive and how you use that creative drive to make, to be a maker is the important part. And whether you are a writer or a builder or an artist, whether you're painting or drawing or knitting, when you're making, when you're being creative, when you're, when you're using your brain to do something unique to you, that's the serious moment. That's the moment of your human experience. And that's the moment I want to have every single day. And I'm sorry if I made anybody cry. <laughs> oh, no, I know I'm for Scott. I'm I'm sorry I made people cry. <laughs> um, as we talked about, whether you're in prior podcasts, whether you're a plotter or a panther, if you're not interested in craft, we're never talking to you. But how craft some craft elements and plot would apply differently, plotters and panthers. So we can more easily speak experientially to the plotter process. But I've talked to enough and been around enough pantsers to be able to speak to how some things apply to the pantsers process, which is why we bring it up. And also there is, I, some people get the idea that I don't find the pantser process valid. That's not true. I mean, that's a hundred percent not true because I probably read a lot of pantsers. I love their work. I want more. I'm ready for it. I'm here for it. Let me know when you're finished. Right. The best pantsers are the ones that some plotters post whips and some pantsers post whips. You can't always tell a plotter from a pantser based on how they post. But sometimes you can tell a plotter from pantser in other ways. And the best pantsers are the ones you can't tell. Because they've done the work that a plotter does. They've just done it. How did you put it? In the back? <laughs> yeah. From the back. <laughs> <From> the back. <laughs> Which immediately brought that song to my head that i probably you, should not well, you know what fuck it my podcast is the do you take it in the ass yeah oh, in the butt. oh well that one too what, what but in the butt? do it yeah. in the butt <laughs> yeah what what in the butt let's do it in the butt and, and uh, yes i just did the dance in my chair um and i regret nothing <laughs> but what, if if you want to be good at your craft and you're a plotter you do the stuff typically up front some of it you do as you go because some people are hybrid type people and like they don't pick all their tertiary characters until they're ready. Some people do all, pick, do all that stuff like months in advance. So um, <laughs> whatever your process is, the, all the same work goes in. It's just where in the process do you do it? If somebody doesn't do the work, that's what's kind of transparent. Yeah. I mean, the, the worst thing I see in fandom is a writer who is not growing and changing. Sliding no, that's not the worst thing I see. Sliding backwards. <laughs> when you find a writer who's written something amazing, and you're like, holy shit, I fucking love this. This is so good. And you go back and read their back catalog, and you see them getting better and better and better. And then they put out something they new, and you're like, oh, what? Did you fall hit your head? And then everything they put out, this is <laughs> what like, happened? what is this? It's like they either they are... Is this a call for help? Are you in trouble? Are you being held hostage? Sometimes it's like, and sometimes I try to play armchair psychologist and figure out what's going on. Like, are they writing as fast as they can to get external validation? And sometimes I think they've just fallen into some really butt ugly tropes that uh, are scaring me. So, yeah, that can happen too. Yeah, sometimes fandom drift can cause some terrible things um, to, to happen. Fandom, fandom um, drift, Correct. but I mean, honestly, literally, honestly, when you're reading something really good. You should not be able to tell the difference between yeah. a plotter and a pantser. 
The final product should reveal nothing to you about the writer's process when it comes to that. Now, with the pants or when it comes to like a series of novels and they want to foreshadow something, it's not uncommon for them to get to the end of like a first novel and go, you know, in the next novel, I want to do blah. I want to foreshadow that in the first novel and they go back and edit in that foreshadowing. That can only be achieved if they haven't been posting as they go. Um, but there are people who do that. Or if you're not afraid to edit. <laughs> but there are people who do Which that. You know. and, and that's fine, you know. that that's a, that, There's nothing... There's no reason not to do that. Um, but speaking of um, funny fandom drift, crutches don't click on the floor ever. Have y'all ever seen what's at the bottom of... Um... It's not a click. It's like a... I, when, I, when I had crutches the last time... Um... There was a sound, it, but it's but it's if you not hear a click. it at all. It's a, it, it's kind of you're hearing the the sound of the rubber gripping on the floor and releasing, and maybe a thump of the crutch landing. But they don't click and clack on the floor for fuck's sake. You'd slip. So my my cane does though, for future reference. <laughs> it clicks a little, because um, I have a a. A flexible foot. They, they can click it, against each other, but clicks. that's not what people are right. They're talking about them clicking and clacking against the floor. It, no. Have I been doing I that? I, I think I have been I doing that. I think I would have told you if I'd noticed it in your work, but I don't know, maybe. Um, but um, it, it is a fandom drift. You can't, like, like I said, when, when I was on crutches, like the, the under the arm ones, there was a noise yeah, that I, mean, I made. Yeah, it's not silent. I'm not saying that, but they don't click. No, but it wasn't a click sound. It was like a, a it was a, like, it was like a, cross between a thump and a yeah a and that depends upon how hard that depends <laughs> on how hard the crutch comes down on the floor but you know um it's just the idea of and when i got my boot i was still using a crutch yeah. and i had my boot i shuffled a little bit there's a little shuffling sound but only on floor not carpet the metally noise can be if the adjustment pins are loose but um or if I don't see Eddie no. letting Christopher have crutches that had a, adjustment issues because his mobility depends on them so much. And a fall um, can be, well, he could be hurt, but it can also be demoralizing for, for a little kid. So he and would again, make sure that Christopher's crutches that weren't in top shape at all times. The it's the noise. It's they're clicking on the floor. It's very specific. And it's a complete fandom drift that somehow crutches click on the floor like high heels. They don't. Also like that reassuring beep of a heart monitor. <laughs> One more time. Every, every, every time I see it, I want to just... If your heart monitor is beeping, it ain't, ain't reassuring. Go, no, baby. You need to... It ain't reassuring. That means you got a problem. Or you came out of your <laughs> anesthesia early. That's what it means. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, which is also a problem, depending right. on how far they are in your surgery. Because that's the only time a heart monitor... A heart monitor beeps is when you're in trouble yeah because when you're in surgery use it use the audio of your to not have to you know look at the monitor the monitor they'll listen to your heart rather than stare at the monitor but they'd silence that and i took the, the reason one of the reasons i know that your anesthesiologist uses this as you know the audio is because i shake off anesthesia really quickly and i said yeah i've woken up several times during i've, I've woken up during um a colonoscopy Ten out of ten, sort of recommend. It, it's it, not, it wasn't it's that, not bad. that big a deal, right? <laughs> but I would. I wake up. I wake up usually like just saying, still, like they're barely and during a biopsy. And I've woken up, and the heart monitor still. Beep.
beep. And the first thing I said to the doctor the last time was, would somebody turn that fucking noise off? It was the first <laughs> thing out of my mouth. And they, they didn't know I was awake. It's like, you, should, you shouldn't even be awake yet. I said, just turn that thing off. It is so annoying. Are you guys trying to annoy me into consciousness? <laughs> Mission accomplished. But yeah, I did wake up during my colonoscopy and I hit my doctor. Right. Which, well, you, you know, wake up fair. and something up your ass that wasn't there when you went to sleep. There's... <laughs> It's to be expected right. that you might throw an arm out, you know, say, hey, whoa. <laughs> and then I woke up during my, um, I, I woke up during a biopsy they had to put me under. I've had several biopsies. And this was the first one where they put, well, no, I've had two biopsies where they put me under. One where they gave me twilight and I woke up and that was the under the arm biopsy um, on my problematic breast side where I've had several biopsies on that breast. Um, and then the other time was when I had a bone biopsy. Um, they gave me the Michael Jackson drugs, which I don't know that, that I shouldn't call them that, propofol. but that's the only thing I remember what they are. It's the ones that he, propofol, um, best nap ever. I can see why he, if he was having problems sleeping, I can see why it, it, he would want it because that was honestly the best sleep I've gotten nice. in two decades. Cause I mean, it, it's nothing. There's no side effects. She just, it's a very, it's a very gentle to sleep. It's a very gentle wake up and you just, and, and it, it's an easy wake up and I, I don't have. And you feel like you had a good eight, yeah, nine hours of like solid two, sleep. It's like, oh, okay. Um, you shake it off quick. There's no side effects for me anyway. Uh, I, 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 I definitely prefer it. So anyway, um, but yeah, there's that creep of like my experience when you're hearing monitors in the hospital, there's nothing reassuring about it because it usually is like your O2 alarm going off. That's the most common thing happening is your O2 alarm is going off. Because you wouldn't, you know, honestly, for somebody like Buck in the hospital, he hasn't got his oxygen on. He's supposed to, right? He's had smoke inhalation. He won't keep his oxygen on. Because honestly, after about a few hours of them blowing oxygen up your nose, your nose is dry. It's uncomfortable. You want to take it off. And the next thing you know, your oxygen saturation plummets. And then the alarm goes off and you're in trouble. Or you just flip or the little too. finger thing off. And then and the nurse comes in and stares at you and like. Then, you know, if you're not careful and you flick it off too many times, they'll they'll tape it to you i'm just saying you're like but i don't like it the tape it's like you're in like the tape finger marker timeout i just move my <laughs> finger all the time like i'm trying to escape bondage <laughs> um but yeah phantom creep can be a terrible thing and so that's one of the things you have to look at when you're working on character gmc is assess how much phantom creep is affecting you we've talked before but it is a classic example uh, eddie can't cook that is phantom creep that is so pervasive that I'm not saying don't do it, but re recognize that there's that that's a fandom thing. That there's nothing intrinsic about the character. There's like one joke, and Chris is joking with his father yeah. about something that he burned or something. Like literally one joke, and the fandom ran with it. I mean, it Christopher's clearly not starving to death, <laughs> so. right? And he's a kid who's probably honestly got a sensitive stomach, so his father has not. Yeah, poisoning him for, you know, the last several years. Or so, um, but if somebody people want to buy him not being an ex excellent cook or being just a very limited cook, fine. But I mean, just recognize that that's right. That or that's just an ordinary creep. cook. Um, anything about you know, like there's a lot of things. Like um, I was seeing a very similar interpretation of internalized homophobia from Eddie in several stories. It was very inter similar take about internalized homophobia. And internalized homophobia, especially for somebody honestly growing up where he did and the kind of religion he grew up in, is 
not an unrealistic take. So I don't have a problem with that as a source of internal conflict. I, it's realistic and I get it. But the take was so similar that it started to read like a form of fandom creep. Because there's nothing intrinsic in the character that we see on the show that would lead to believe that that that's an intrinsic part of his character. No, I agree. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Um, well, it makes sense, but I it isn't something that I would um, pick. I get why. Honestly, I get why his father would have that kind of internalized homophobia. But Eddie is a different generation. And I think that a lot of the older writers in fandom don't really understand the mindset of that generation and the kind of media they were exposed to and the kind of um, just the mindset is completely different. Like, <clears throat> And it's not just about sexuality. It's it's about a, it's about a host of topics. Uh, it's like recycling um, the different perspectives on on that on on mental health. Um, the focus on good mental health. Destigmatizing uh, it, just being able to talk about it. I mean, just a lot being of, able to admit you take an antidepressant. Right, that is right. something that I wouldn't do in my generation. Honestly, we didn't do that when I was young. I've been on antidepressants since I was in my late 20s, but I didn't I wasn't really comfortable talking about it until probably in the last 10 years. And I'm 47. I mean, there was a lot of shame around it. Shame that I had been taught, obviously. Um so it might have been a choice of insult, but it wasn't an acceptable insult, was it? I can remember the F word being passed around in my high school like it was an adjective. And no one blinked an eye. The F-A-G word. And now saying that word in the public school will get your ass taken to the principal's office. Now, in my school, if you got to the principal's office, you got paddled. Right? <laughs> These days, they call your parents and maybe child services. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. You know, it's, so there's a big difference. There's a generational difference. Um, and, and, and again, it, it's, it's, there's a difference between... Eddie and Christopher that you know and Eddie Eddie as a parent you see this in canon recognizes that he wants different for him his son it's at least it's implied that he wants his son to have better than he had and he tries to give Christopher better exposure to things than he had so there is going to be a generational difference even between Eddie and Christopher and how they look at things and we also canonically, Eddie has a little bit of technophobia. He has issues about privacy and um, the thing. I don't see how anybody functioning in the world today. Which I think I think that's also kind of. I mean, I see that in younger people too. Like I've got um, a a friend whose teenage daughter. He's like she's like nineteen or twenty. Every time she leaves the house, her kid unplugs Alexa. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think people, I think people go run one of two ways on the private <laughs> things. Either kind of go illusion <clears throat> anymore and just deal with it, or they just get super paranoid and they don't want anything smart in their home. And Eddie kind of Eddie and Buck are on the opposite ends of that spectrum, I think, based upon what we see in canon. I mean, I would have smart bulbs if if my husband would buy them. I mean, I I have no problem with any of that stuff. I don't care. It is completely an illusion. Privacy is an illusion. If People in the government are so bored they're paying attention to what I'm doing. I invite them to pay attention. I am yeah, so sorry I mean, you're that I, bored, honey. Would you like me to write some that's porn That's about for all you? I've got on offer that's interesting, <laughs> right, is porn. 
<laughs> I mean, my research spirals look like I'm either a serial killer or a or a porn star, but you know, maybe a pro dom. I remember in the Facebook group we were talking about antidepressants, and someone um, I don't, I don't, I'm obviously not going to say their name, but I don't remember the exact circumstances, but they were really put off by the idea that their doctor wanted to put them on an antidepressant, um, and they kept insisting that they were normal and they didn't need it. Normal. It was clear they were very uncomfortable with, yeah, normal. They were very uncomfortable with the idea of being considered neurodivergent. And if you're clinically depressed, you're you're neurodivergent. Um, and accepting that label for myself was really important to owning my circumstances. Uh, but I, that, I remember her being just really put off by the idea that someone thought she needed an antidepressant. I kept insisting that she that. was normal. Is, the psychiatric meds are used for a host of things, and the funny and and, and vice versa. There are there are um, epilep particularly epilepsy meds that are used psychiatrically, and so they're you know they're they're um, I can't remember what that's called when they use them off label off label. Um, and uh, um, yeah, now I take Cymbalta for, for clinical depression. Interestingly enough, Cymbalta is off label for, fib for, for fibromyalgia. I, mean, I took it for a while, but I didn't stay on it. Um, but it wasn't prescribed to you for depression. So, you know, their medications are, they have other applications. And um, um, people, it's interesting sometimes with people, I can tell they're uptight about mental health stuff because they'll, they'll be taking um, a psychiatric med for a non-psychiatric application. And they'll be wanting you, you to be sure that you know that they're taking, that yeah, they're taking this medication, but it's not for a psychiatric issue. And it's like, I take a psychiatric medicine for sleep. Um, I, I, I forget what it is. Uh, I think it's a serotonin uptake inhibitor. Might, might, might be the SSRI opposite. or SNRI? Maybe. I can't. I don't remember. But hold on. <laughs> because I was filling my pill bottle. I have too many pills, y'all. The older you get, the more pills they give you. I told my doctor, I said, can we have less pills? And she was like, are you going to be less sick? I was like, wow. Wow. I forget what it's... It's not hydrocodone. That's a painkiller that I'm allergic to. Trazodone. I take trazodone for sleep. I think trazodone is a... Um, I th it's definitely an antidepressant. Uh, it was how it started, but I, I want to say... Um, it's definitely a serotonin. It definitely works on serotonin. Um, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely one of the antidepressants. Let me Google it. Let me just Google it because I have a list of sleep meds up, and weirdly, it's not on it. And trazodone is very common for. It's a serotonin agonist and reuptake inhibitor. Reuptake inhibitor. S A R I. It's this S okay. S A R I. It's one of the I classes. So. So there's like S N R I's, S A R I's, S S R I's. Anyways, I have. I have insomnia, and we tried that drug for my depression, but it didn't work. But it helped me sleep. Um, so she gave me a lower dose to take as needed for sleep and put me on a different antidepressant. So, but we're talking about we the, 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 as Eddie would be destigmatizing mental health. That it's it's a generational thing. Earlier, earlier, someone said that. Um, Eddie had therapy with getting while well, um, when he, when he was medically discharged. Um, that isn't necessarily true. I mean, the VA could have ordered it. That doesn't mean he did it. 
because they couldn't actually give him orders after he um, after he was discharged. Yeah. Also, um, getting because I have a cousin who discharged out of the Marines, um, and he was uh, basically asked to do therapy once a week, and he went once and and, and never went back. And the VA didn't the wait list for post say anything to him. Mental health care for the VA is outrageous. It's incredibly underfunded. Yeah. I think he waited like three or four months for, the, yeah. for that appointment. So, and, and then never I mean, went back. it's it, getting mental health care through the VA would, would be, if, if post-discharge would have been difficult. And it, like, like somebody pointed out, it might have been that he didn't prioritize it very highly. Um, and he would have better coverage for mental health coverage um, and better access to it through the LAFD. But he only went in canon because he had to. Bobby made it. Right. They made him. So I doubt seriously he had it after he was discharged. I think they would have suggested it, set up an appointment, and he would have not dog. I think he probably would have focused on physical recovery because at that point, somewhere in that physical recovery, Shannon bailed on him. So he's got a four-year-old. He's recovering from three bullet wounds. He has PTSD. This man has two spoons, and his and, and he has a ten-spoon day. Just saying. And then eventually, yeah, he's working three jobs at um at one point. And that's canon. all important when you're looking <clears> at <throat> to, to tie that back to GMC. When you're looking at your character's GMC, all of that stuff plays because maybe you don't get into it in if you're writing a 10k story, you're not going to get into their entire backstory, but you need to in your own head understand how that character's military service and the their PTSD is affecting them. And you need to know, did they actually get treatment for it or is that PTSD is still a major issue for them because that affects the way you're going to write them even in a 10k story and maybe in the story you want to write you want to be light and fluffy and this Eddie has had therapy and has had trauma treatment which can be a little different um, so you know when it comes to the GMC issues around a character I'm not talking to, how, why do you I'm, I said you're going into a timeout you're going on the charger and do not talk to me again <laughs> That's my watch. She's being very serious right now. <laughs> Smart watches. My, I can answer text and stuff on my, um, my stupid Fitbit too. Well, someone did a good manip on that. Yeah, really good. Um, you're not going to find Eddie's age. We don't actually know his age. We estimate his age being that he was probably around 30 when he did the LAFD. We guess. Yeah, that's where I put him. Yeah. That's where so I put him. give or take a couple, give or take a couple years either way Ish. is about where you are. So by season five, he'd be about thirty-three. I kind of think that he's about five years. I put older. him about four to Three five four. years older than Buck. So okay. Buck in season five is thirty. Eddie's yeah. about thirty-four, thirty-five. That's just what I do. Um, so when you have to understand, you know, what what your character's background is, and of if they've got something like major trauma. You need to decide before you go into your story because major trauma plays into because it is going to affect all of that internal stuff, right? So you can't have a buck who's post bombing who has not got major trauma and either you've had him dealt with it or it's still lurking around in the background. I mean, he went through nearly dying three times in six months, the bombing, the embolism and the tsunami that's in the six month period of time. So that's, Either he got some, you know, eventually in canon, he got therapy in season four. But did he get therapy before that? Is he still struggling with trauma? 
does that play into your your timeline you know and that's stuff that you have to kind of like mentally sort out before you start writing because even if you're writing a short fluffy piece you know you need to understand like you could just write off your head and go okay i want to write to keep this fluffy and sweet both these characters have been through trauma counseling they've dealt with their shit they're 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 as good a versions of themselves as they can be so that i can write something fluffy that's taking place between i mean look honestly every single character in 911 needs therapy every single character needs therapy they get all the therapy couples therapy aromatherapy <laughs> behavioral therapy cognitive therapy physical therapy <laughs> they need all of it <laughs> every single bit of it <laughs> occupational therapy yeah just everything <laughs> oh but you know Car carla does seem well balanced but i think she's well balanced because she's got therapy <laughs> I mean, because honestly, a caregiver role like Carla has has to be immensely stressful. Oh, yeah. She probably does get ongoing therapy to make sure that she manages her stress. She seems like somebody who knows she needs that to to manage the stresses of her job. She's probably she she's definitely checking herself before she wrecks herself. I mean, if you want to write it, season, so somebody says writing a story about Buck, Eddie and Chris going to the beach post start of season three without at least mentioning this tsunami would be jarring um you'd literally have to write it at the very beginning of season three and you'd have to slip it in before buck's embolism i mean you've got a very limited window there to to have a now i've got um my honey trap story they end up at a beach condo at some point and uh, Christopher and Buck want to go into the water and Christopher's like, well, I guess we can do it as long as daddy doesn't have another freak out like he did last time because the first time they went to the water after the tsunami, Eddie was the one that freaked out. <laughs> I just wanted to kind of flip it. You know, <laughs> just a little flip. <laughs> just because Christopher and, and, and Buck are in therapy. They're, they're owning their trauma. They're working through it. Eddie's the one who's a hot mess. <laughs> Get out of the water. <laughs> so yeah just just to kind of flip it a little bit give it a little now, i've um, seen people write chris with massive trauma from the tsunami which change. is fine i think it's a valid exploration um but canonically he had very little trauma he he conflated his trauma with his mother with the tsunami eventually and had nightmares about his mother dying in the water which is completely different mm -hmm. than trauma from the tsunami because he actually was um, in canon, his teacher told Eddie that Christopher said that tsunamis were no big deal and that they didn't find that to be very helpful for him to say. Um, and if you, but th that speaks to, from a canon perspective, that speaks to the level of care that Buck gave him and safety that he helped him feel. Yeah, he, he, he felt very safe with Buck. Um, honestly, that's actually a really ugly thing for the teacher to say because i don't honestly think anybody has the right to tell somebody else right. how it to process no, their own not. trauma now buck for sure would have trauma from the tsunami um double because not only did he lose christopher like at the initial wave and had to find him and keep him safe but they got separated later plus the um, trauma of being in a natural disaster and then, um that's not easy so it's like well yeah triple. Plus, you know, and also Buck had a perspective about that 400 mile per hour, at least wave coming at yeah, him. We're going to die. No. Um, 
So Buck, Buck was shielding Christopher from the reality of their situation, but Buck was perfectly aware of the reality of the situation, which was that once he saw that wave, which there was likely they were going to die. Um, so he's got, um, you can kind of see Buck's trauma make landfall when he's standing in front of Eddie and he's holding Christopher's glasses. And it's like, he has this moment where he's ha going to have to say that he thinks Christopher is dead. And that's where you see his trauma landing. And then they, they end run it because Eddie saw Christopher with that lady. Um, but he's so focused and so determined that the whole time until he's standing in front of Eddie and then he's just slowly falling apart. Yeah. It's very good acting on Oliver Stark's part. I mean, he owned both those episodes. He was great. I, I there were, yeah, that, it was that, definitely that the reaction movie we deserve. The, the tsunami arc, the three episode tsunami arc, the B action, the B grade action movie that everybody should watch. Um, or something like that. It was, I just thought it was very entertaining the way they referred to that. Um, or B grade disaster movie or something. I don't know, whatever it was. Um, I, I, I love I, a B grade disaster I'm, movie. I'm all, I'm all up in, <laughs> about even in the F grade disaster movies. That's my, that's my stress relief. Um, otherwise, I yeah. would watch the yeah. core, core so many times. The it's core. Like, the science makes no sense. The core. I mean, the thing about that that movie, yeah, right? Where, where did all the did physics all the go? Physics go? It's, for a movie that's so brilliantly paced and well acted, the science is the junkiest science I think I've ever seen in, in a movie. It is so bad. It is so bad. Um, but I, I I can't help but love it. For starters, I love everybody. I mean, the cast is amazing. Just Stanley Tucci, Aaron Eckhart, Hilary Swank. Um, what's his face? I love who Stanley played, uh, uh, the, the Admiral in Star Trek reboots. Um, oh my God, Bruce Greenwood. Um, oh yeah, I love him too. I mean, the cast was awesome. And, and, and Delroy Lindo, and you've got so it's got this amazing cast, and the movie it, it's acted brilliantly because of course it's amazing cast. So it's that's because it's like it's crap taken seriously. It's like we know it, that this is stupid. We want you to go all in and right. act like it's that's the most exactly it. Thing that ever is seen. the perfect framing for it. It's crack taken seriously. Because it's beautifully acted, it is brilliantly paced, and the science is so stupid. <laughs> so stupid. Even you you can know nothing about um geomagnetics and still find it stupid. So you know I think it would be kind of hard to keep that accent um in that kind of act in, in that kind of action. Yeah. Especially like if, if he'd been working for a long time during that day and he's exhausted, yeah. I would think that his accent would slip. That makes perfect sense. I think Oliver Stark is very talented. I look forward to the day he starts making movies. Yeah. Because he's the action star we need. Oliver Stark is a very, very <laughs> I mean the his, his acting in the Buck Begins arc was next level. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, I mean, you'll you'll hate Buck's parents, but his acting was just uh, next. It was just unbelievable. Um, it me it wound me up and pissed me off, but I it, I can't get over. It. I think that his he he did a phenomenal job. Um, oh my God! Star says the geology department at the college had movie posters for the core hanging up in the labs. <sighs> Sometimes you got to embrace the stupid. It'd be fun to get together with like geophysicists and stuff and like deconstruct all the bad science, like while smoking pot. Um, it's like, wait, have you seen the volcano? <laughs> so there's a volcano. Better yet, let's Los watch Angeles. TV. There's a volcano in Austin. Go. 
go. Dante's Peak. Deconstructing. I mean, lots of pretty. <laughs> at least. Deconstructing at least the science and action movies would be hysterical. <laughs> but I love disaster films. I can't help it. I just, they're my stress relief. I love the world getting destroyed. I don't know. I watch. What's that saying about When you? I get really upset, I watch The Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> Is excellent. Which is an excellent disaster. It, everything movie. is gets fucked but, up I mean, in that movie. I mean, there, there, nothing is spared. It's not just California getting wiped out. This disaster isn't a full blown disaster right. until Lady Liberty takes or a dive. Or the Golden Gate Bridge gets destroyed, <laughs> which seems to happen in about fifty percent of disaster movies. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so, did anybody have? I I said if anybody had questions about GMC, to go put them in, ask a question for the podcast, and. uh I didn't go look to see if there another no questions. Did we have any questions about GMC? We didn't really talk about conflict. We talked a lot about motivation. We said we would get to conflict at the end. But we bring up conflict podcasts. a lot in um in other podcasts because that's really um conflict is how I move my plot. And my favorite kind of conflict is external conflict because I really enjoy that us against the universe dynamic with my characters. Um and so having outside forces act upon them and them acting against those uh, those forces. Common is internal conflict my jam. Um, uh, for me might be um, I'm in love with him, but I don't think he loves me because he's straight kind of thing. But I get that resolved fairly quickly. That is still a form of internal conflict. Although as much as I enjoy that conflict, I also really enjoy right. that um, whole gay for you just, trope. Just climbing, just climbing each other's, just climbing each other's <laughs> lap, you know. Um, um, I do like writing Eddie with the coming to the realization that he, of his sexuality that his issue is that it's, he's demisexual. I, I'm getting more and I'm getting more and more I on board with that. I can write him either way. I'm getting more on board on board with the demisexual thing because I, for him to realize that for him it's about the feelings, not about the gender. That he's sort of so he's biromantic demisexual. Um, I think really fits his fits the way I interpret the character a lot of the time. So, um, and I do kind of think of Buck as more pansexual than bisexual because I think Buck is like, well, I mean, whatever. I, I mean, I guess <laughs> let's go. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, he's he's of the age. He's of the age where he would whatever make you the got nuance about because pansexual is under the bisexual umbrella. Um, and somebody of his age, mm -hmm. like my, I would say a lot of people in my generation just didn't give a flying fuck about the nuance between bisexual and pansexual. It's like, you know, to me, bisexual is my gender mm -hmm. and other genders, not, um, um, not, 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 not the binaries. Just the two right. it wasn't most the binaries. popular it was genders. Gender yeah. Genders, right. So, um, there was a big push at one point that got people really uptight in the LGBT community before the other letters were added on that, that pansexual was trying to erase bisexual. So there was this, and, and there was already an issue in the gay community about bisexual erasure. That if you settle down with somebody who's opposite gender, that well, then you were straight all along. If you settle down with somebody who's the same gender, well, you were obviously gay all, gay all along. So bisexual erasure gay is already along. a problem yeah. in the community. And then pansexual was considered so a, rude. like under the bisexual umbrella, just like, you know, demi is part of, uh, is under the ace umbrella, right? It, Nobody seems to have a big issue about that, but there was like people being uptight about Pan being under the bisexual way because bisexual is about the binary. And a lot of people who are bisexual were going, which at the time I identified more as bisexual, were like going, wait, what? 
and it's not to a lot of people it wasn't the binary it was just my gender and other genders right so um but i do think of a younger generation um embraced more the nuance of the difference between the things under the because there are mm -hmm. many things under the bisexual umbrella there's a lot of different nuanced expressions under the bisexual umbrella um it's not just pan or bi or whatever there's there's like a, a lot of different things that are floating under that umbrella and people of that generation are more likely i think to embrace like buck's generation are more likely to embrace the nuance of what those different things mean so i could definitely see him identifying as as pan yeah i i i, I appreciate characters who seek to define themselves in a way that is comfortable to because self-ownership wasn't something that was encouraged when i was young and it is honestly honestly wasn't encouraged for women in the south like that whole thing about being modest and, and not being proud of yourself and your accomplishments um and figuring out who you are and what you are and embracing that situation is part of self-actualization so i appreciate the um the nuance that we're seeing um yeah when it comes I, to sexuality in today's i think society. some people i really do appreciate it i mean i don't know i certainly for it, 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 in my generation i for me it was just about coming out was like the big milestone i didn't feel like i needed to i mean eventually i did kind of refine in my own head my my position my sexuality um but i i guess i didn't feel like i needed a very super specific label i felt like just the coming out part was the big deal but i can see how it really helps a lot of mm -hmm. people with when it comes to having the right term or the right group for them because it helps i think it, i think it has a sense of feeling like i'm not alone i'm not the only one um yeah, that that there's that enough acceptance. of people like me that this has a name, and I think that that means a lot to people to feel like that they're part of. Because I think a lot of sometimes when it comes to sexuality and gender issues and stuff, that a lot of people feel very alone and very isolated in it. And so, for some people to understand where they are on that spectrum and understand and go, oh, that's me. That's my. That's my group. That's my label. It's very freeing for them to feel like they're not alone other people don't care about the label they're just going to do what they're going to do um now there was a blip <laughs> i i do appreciate the nuance and i appreciate the acceptance what i don't appreciate the is, is terrible the shaming that some people that do in the community to each other like um the bi erasure or um asexuals who shame people who right. like to or, have sex or ace ace come on now you need to stop asexual enough you know um <laughs> yeah because you're not my right? version of asexual and, and there was an asexual. issue for there's an issue for a long time um <laughs> and i don't know where actually i don't know where buck would fall age-wise on this particular blip it did it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a blip it, was, it lasted for quite a while where pan um because of the the bi pan war that kind of existed in the community for a while which again this comes back to from my perspective it rooted back to the bi erasure that was a problem in the gay community because you know the gay community was not is not always unified and accepting about everything there's like internal wars that happen exactly there was the 
I knew a guy that refused to date bisexuals because he didn't want somebody. He he said, and I quote, right. "I don't want some." But what Dark said is exactly the issue was that for a while, pan when people identify as pan, people took that to mean you were saying you were slut, and it was like that wasn't what people were saying with that nuance. But it became like this shaming stigma thing that when you said you were pan, that you were identifying yourself as a slut. So there, and so it became a slut shaming thing on top of everything else. And that, um, I would say that hap was going on, Dark, would you say for about 10 years? Maybe it was only like about five years, but boy, it sure felt like it was about a decade of slut <laughs> that- shaming. Slut shaming is so infuriating. I, it is so infuriating. I, I very, very little things get me as hot under the collar as slut shaming, as fast as slut shaming does. I mean, it's just like like zero to a hundred immediately. It's just in fucking infuriating. Um, and you know, it, maybe it's because for a long time, um, that was a way for society to yeah. suppress and abuse women. That men could get away with it, but a woman could not. Men were expected to have experience, but women were expected to be virgins. And the when the women who gave these men experience were whores. <laughs> Dark says some people aren't sluts; they are whores. Respect the hustle. Um, right. But speaking of, I'll tell you a story about my mama. My mama called somebody a slut. Um, she's mad at them, and it, I, I was like, "Mama." She says, I know, I know I shouldn't use that word. I was like, no, you shouldn't. She said, so a whore would have been better? I was like, well, is she getting paid? And my mom went, you can see her kind of try to figure out if this person was getting paid. And she was like, I don't think so. I said, well, then I guess slut would be accurate, but it's still rude. There's lots of options. (laughs) And she said, wait, she said, wait, (laughs) whores get paid? Yeah. I was like, yeah, whores get paid. And she's like, okay, I, that's good to know. I'm sure she filed it right it's there beside Chelsea and snowballing. Thank snowballing. Yeah, the judgment, the judgment within our own communities can be the worst part. It can be terrible. I mean, I just from a distance, observing the battles uh, between asexuals is like... Whore <laughs> is an occupation right? and slut is a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> a fun lifestyle. I people who who shame others or for not enjoying, enjoying sex, sex, they're just the fucking worst. Okay, but, sex you is know, fun. I, I, yeah, I exactly. Lady, exactly. Actually, I, I talked. I mean, I've I've known her for years, but I talked to this woman. We were talking, and it it was something that was she came out to me, um, and it was sort of a weird conversation. It was it was a little bit of a that wasn't a weird conversation, but it took me by surprise because she'd been married for years. She was in her sixties. And she told me that she was ace. And I just kind of like blinked and stared because I was like, what? And she said it, it, it had taken her and she'd been married Look multiple what? times. She had multiple, she had several children and she had taken her until she was almost 60 years old to realize that she had never had any desire in her entire life to have sex, that she had never enjoyed it. And it's, I, it's and affected. she got married but because she was expecting is, she, she was that she got, had gotten a lot of support in the community about, you know, coming to, to terms with the fact that realizing that after her whole adult life, realizing that after being married all these years, that she was ace and, and, and having that realization. And she talked to her husband about it and um, they decided to stay married and he respected her decision 
to not have to not want to have sex anymore and that they would have intimacies like hugging and cuddling in bed and stuff but there wouldn't be any sexual contact between them anymore and he was on board with that decision and he he loved her and and then he wanted to be with her through their you know retirement years more than he wanted to have a sexual life with her and um she got a lot of abuse in all of a sudden in her support community because she chose to stay with her husband yeah and it was like i guess she wasn't what? ace enough because she wasn't getting a divorce which was she was but no, ace it doesn't, doesn't equal which was, a romantic but it, it was this perception that i guess some of the people who've been supporting her in this community that she was in that because she'd had a sex life with this man that for years who had been that had been unfulfilling and and in retrospect to her felt like a terrible thing she'd been enduring for years to them in their minds they'd built her the culmination of her story up into a divorce and when it didn't go that way she was getting i don't know it was some sort of weird ace shaming you're not ace enough or something um i would tell that and that's when those she, people to suck my ass and that's when she and i talked ace, about it but whatever to me and asked me what my <laughs> thoughts on it were and my thought was to get a different support community because there are a lot of ace people out there who are married who are romantic who cuddle you know uh, i mean you've got i and i told and that i said this, that's basically what i told her dark you're you've got a partner who supporting you in changing the definition of your relationship I don't understand. I mean, honestly, it had to be a nightmare for him to realize that she had never wanted the intimacies that they had. But he got through it, and they right, right. I said, I need a therapist right um, now. Moment. Yeah. So it's just, but so I mean, I I'm not ace, so I can't speak to that. But I've I I know a lot of people who are, um, and I have friends who are who are ace and um, who are both aromantic and um, who are. Um, either biromantic or or whatever and who are in relationships and who are not um i know people who are ace who are masturbates people who don't want to have anything to do with sex so clearly we know there's a big spectrum but isn't that gray ace though sybil i mean i mean i mean gray ace is like i forget i forget what i was gonna say gray ace i believe Fibro. like sapiosexual demisexual um uh People who involve people who they have an intellectual attraction to. Oh. Huh. I mean, menopause changes your sex drive. Hormones, I mean, everything changes your sex drive. Stress, emotional uh, trauma, intellectual trauma, physical trauma. Your hormones as a woman can change on a dime. Medications can fuck up your libido. Um, you could be on a medication for most of your life since i mean there there are women who've been on the pill since they were um teens to help regulate their periods not realizing that it had fucked up their sex drive and and then they don't know that that's the issue until they're in their 40s and they come off of it right so right then, they're like, like, then they go into a full cougar stage <laughs> so i want to read something dark said dark said some oh, people that's what seem I was to say the people who come to light to late life understandings needs to cast off their previous identity aren't really committed to it or some such bullshit that is saying does seem to be the mentality for some people and that's just it's just really unfortunate that you know but so from the sidelines i see these internal battles in communities whether it's the bisexual community or whether it's within the lgbtqia plus community in general um when it's in the um um 
in the ace community it's just they, they just you know the, the internal wars are real but i understand the comfort from feeling like you found where you belong i do get that and i i understand um that someone of like bucks bucks generation and his age group appreciate the nuance of finding his exact spot as opposed to the parent umbrella but what i would like to say at the end of this is that um gender identity and these labels around your sexuality are social constructs what it means to be a man and a woman is entirely built on social constructs i mean it it has nothing to do with your biological sex it is a society expectation that is forced on you practically from the moment you're born from the clothes you wear to the appearance that you give to the ideal body weight all of that is social constructs that are forced on you for good or bad mostly bad to be honest because gender roles are obscene yeah it's also impacted by race and class uh political circumstances religious circumstances i mean it's all a big convoluted mess and religion shapes a lot and of our circumstances definitely. around gender and one of the worst and parts about it, one of the for me the the four worst parts about it is that it's very difficult even in our dialogue about ourselves to divorce ourselves from those constructs because it's part of the language by which we communicate um you know labels like when you frame yourself as bisexual or pansexual or whatever that's based on constructs that society says we have to frame our sexual orientation right as opposed to just you know if we had a society that didn't have gender roles that made people uncomfortable or that made people unequal and we didn't have class wars and we didn't have any stigma about who you went to bed with well it Kenzie's probably right that about 90% of people would be at least incidentally bisexual, right? Meaning they would just fuck whoever the fuck they wanted to. Yeah. In every which way right. that it would accomplish. <laughs> I remember seeing this cartoon, or this little meme once, where this woman had her baby dressed up as a dinosaur. Um, and somebody stops her and says, is this a boy or a girl? And the woman says, well, it's clearly a T-Rex. <laughs> right? And I wish, I wish on an almost daily basis that one of the things I like about English is it's not, overall, it's not a gendered language. We don't have the masculine and feminine form of a lot of words. We don't have to, right, like the, like the romance language. Spanish and French do. But we do still have masculine and feminine words, like pronouns and whatnot. Um, we do have a masculine and a feminine word for, you know brother sister kind of thing and i do wish our our language was even further divorced mm -hmm. from gender than it is um or that it had more expressions of I gender agree. than it does because we seem to only have male female and other which is unfortunate but at least it's not as specific as some language i think it's i think it's russian that is super specific so like brother-in-law for us could mean my spouse's brother or it could mean my my sibling's brother my sibling's spouse right that brother brother-in-law applies to both but russia russian i believe has two different words completely for those relationships so every so a different word a different, a different word for my wife's brother and my brother's right. husband right so my spouse's brother is one word okay and my sibling's husband is a completely different word whereas in english they're both brother-in-law so i'm grateful <laughs> <laughs> that we don't have a different word for y'all that's a little complicated 
because the problem there then becomes in what happens they don't have there's no room in there for the non-binary right right when 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 every no. every different in-law has its own word every in-law expression sister-in-law brother-in-law so someone from russia is saying they don't have a word that translates to sibling. which is the generic so you have a brother and sister everything is nothing is non-binary that was my impression from what i had looked wow. at it was when i was looking into that's the Russian grammar but um it made my brain break a little bit to read all the words for like brother-in-law mother-in-law sister-in-law because there's multiple words for each one and it depends upon the relationship that you're talking about whereas we just genericize it and where i so apparently indian dialects do it too and chinese as well so so that's wow although i have heard that chinese um, is the most difficult language cantonese to yeah i would i from what i've heard yes mandarin I've, I've heard is not as difficult to pick up as cantonese but english is compared to a lot of languages english is remarkably less less gender issues in it and so i try to dial down my frustration with english around its gender issues um but i still when i'm writing at times wish there were ways to be more elegant about removing gender from um i stumble over non-binary um pronouns i'm trying to like force myself to use them in like my mental thinking to kind of open myself up to it because it's like it's, I mean, it's a stumbling block as a writer that i do not want and i have a a um non-binary character in one of my original works who goes by z zir z yeah. zim zirs right he it'd be a he him yeah z zim zirs and so i've been working on it um because i think it's important to I do honestly wish that they had like one set that they, that there would just be one established set that I could learn and put into my process. But there are several different non-binary pronouns that are me, moving around. Personally, like in real, in real life and meet space, who's non-binary doesn't use those alternate pronoun sets. They just use they and them. Um, so that makes it even harder to adapt to a pronoun set because I don't know anybody. I've also been using they and them in the narrative because as a as a breakup, but I also use yeah. they and them yeah. for especially, male and female. Especially because I'm when I try not to make a gender assumption, so. but um, but apparently, um, uh, Susan says that there are multiple different kinship systems. English uses one of the simplest ones out there, and it causes a lot of issues when trying to deal with extended families. I mean, I can see that because we don't have a way of expressing the extended family familial relationships um we have like a term that could apply to four different relationships um so yeah, i totally get that it could be a giant pain in the tush you know and also because we have like cousin could mean literally anything so, I mean, cousin could mean somebody you, sh you you legally could go to jail for fucking in this country or it could mean somebody that you aren't even barely related to so or it could be somebody you're not related to, but someone called them a cousin and they got put down in the family Bible and three years and like three generations later, their kids are the your cousins and you don't know how it happened. Everybody Texas is not the South, by the mm. way. This is, this is a tip for you 911 writers. Texas is Texas. The South is the South. South. Eddie Texas would like to be its own country. South. Every time I see Eddie saying he's Texas. Every time I see he Eddie's say he story saying Texas. he's from the South, I just go, no, he's from Texas. I have Eddie use an insult word um, in one of my fix, and when Chim repeats it, Eddie goes, I'm from Texas, and walks away. Right? <laughs> like, that it sums does. up the entire thing. And it does. 
It does. Texas was its own country, but Texas could not be its own country today. Um, California could it, be, yeah. but Texas does not have the economy to be their own country. They just yes, wish we they did. We did have one question um, about GMC, which was uh, somebody's having an issue that they feel like they know their internal GMC fairly well, but the external is escaping them. Um, they didn't give the specific, but they said, how do you work past that? The overthinking of working out the internal and external or the GMC to begin with and get to the writing. Um, so how to typically actually, I think for a lot of people, I would say that most people find the external easier to deal with. So I would say you're actually ahead of the game because for most people working out the internal is a little bit harder. Um, so we'll just give some examples of external because the big because it specifically mentions for the big moxie and the big moxie coming up is canon divergence. So, in a canon divergent situation, um, external conflict can come from a lot of ways. It can come from nature can create external conflict. Um, people can create external conflict. Um, but the big ones or, are you know natural disasters, uh, fights, war. like a argument, family arguments, but. And mind you, external conflict leads to internal conflict because your character has a reaction. And actually, a lot of times, internal conflict will be fed by an external conflict. So, and a lot of times, external conflicts will have repercussions and ripples that you'll have to manage for some time after the fact, or even right. the length of the entire also, work, depending on what it is. External conflict also might be an external motivator, meaning. If, in the case of John Wick, the external conflict that was brought to John's house was also motivators, right? They were the actions that were being foist, foisted upon him that he was going to, that he was being motivated to react to. So conflict can also, when it comes to external conflict, because these things feed into each other. So external conflict can also be external motivating event. And then that can lead to an external goal. Remember, when it comes to goals, external goals are tangible. Internal goals are intangible. So if you want to... And your end product should weave all of these elements together like a braid. You should weave it all together throughout your narrative so that you have... Um, you don't... If you have a conflict or a goal that sticks out and is like a big giant ass rock in the middle of your narrative, you've misstepped. You've added a subplot you shouldn't have. Um, you've used a character you shouldn't have. Um, and it will create, it will make ripple management impossible. So let's say, um, as an example, about why these things have to feed into each other and they're not divorced from one another. Let's say your character wants a relationship. They want love. That's, inter that's an internal goal. And they want a house. That's an external goal. That's something tangible. Okay. Well, these two things might be and probably are intr intrinsically connected because do they want the house before the relationship? If so, what is driving the house and the relationship to be separate? Um, or are they wanting the house because they want a family to put in the house? In which case, do they need to get the family first? And the love and the relationship and then know what kind of house to get. I mean, and, and that comes down to the motivation. Why do they want the house? What is the house for? Right. And so that you what does the house represent? Because um, if I was going to give Buck a house before, you know, a relationship, if I wanted him to buy a house, like he has a house in Requiem. 
Um, and he bought that house before B. He wanted a place of his own that was safe and secure. He wanted security. And he needed the security of his own his home. magic kind of almost and he had the money to make that happen a little, a little privacy and and, and right. distance yeah and a little bit of buffer kind, between his neighbors it'd be the same kind of thing with like and veronica a, was driving him nuts was a sentinel guide they might need more <laughs> of a buffer around them than other people um but like in fearless and eddie they say that you know, Buck says that you know I I don't know my house is kind of big. Eddie says, yeah, yeah, but you got room for a family and you're and making it. In Fearless, Buck is is going to build a house. He um, and whether he is he, of course what his end goal is is he wants both Eddie and Christopher. But even if the relationship with Christopher, I mean Eddie doesn't work out. Christopher is Buck's long long game. Is Christopher is he's went back in time to save Christopher. He's hoping to save Eddie, but he went back for Christopher. So the house is, he, it's going to be built with Christopher in mind that in the event that he can't save Eddie, that this is a place that Christopher can live and grow up. So it's going to have right? a It's going to be single level. Cameras. Um, I mean, I always kind of, right. Except for the sniper tower. Because he might um, need it so for parents. There won't. I'm just I'm joking. She's not going to throw a sniper when, tower. Story. When I read stories where they buy a multi-level house, there are plenty of ranch style houses in L.A., um, cause I mean, who's, I, I just can't yeah. see Eddie and sleeping on a different level from Christopher. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Sharks with lasers on their heads. But really interestingly, I think some of the people have never been in a multi-level house because most of the time in modern builds, the master is on the bottom floor. Yeah. In older builds, like they'll have all the bedrooms on the second floor, but a lot, but architects started to change that because they're trying to model houses that you can grow old in. So they want to master. I, I the think people think on, that to get a bigger floor. house, it has to be um, multi-level, but it, California ranch style houses are, are, are a thing. They're, they're one, they're single level and there's tons of them, um, especially in Southern California where there's, you know, it was sprawling. It, it's an urban sprawl. They're, it didn't get crowded, you know, for quite a while. So, um, but my point is, is it? And also, I think with the earthquake prone, it wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah, they're to also have a two story house. It is, and also that there are fewer houses issue? in California that have full basements because it's a lot of uh, earthquake building codes didn't allow basements for a long time. Um, but, um, mm -hmm. but. You know, so Buck is designing a house. Like he's the bathroom is going to be a complete wet room, so it has a completely accessible shower that will be be able to adapt as Christopher gets older to whatever his needs are. Um, and so he's going to have the house built, but he his his goal with the house it's like Plan A, but he's got a Plan B too. And Plan B is a van conversion in case he has to go on the run, with Christopher. Because if he loses that court case, he's stealing that kid. He's going to kidnap him and just go. But, you know. Again, I do feel like a hitman might be a better investment. <laughs> That's just how yes. I think. Some people need it. Went they to were hitman. fucking awful. They need it. See. I think that should Kira, be plan to hitman. We were talking about this. Should and be a I went to man conversion and go on the run. But, you know. So, his. So it's Your like mileage may vary. Christopher's Buck's plan. <laughs> Eddie is Buck's hope, and he, he every plan he makes, he's going to have room for Eddie if 
Eddie wants it, but he doesn't want to foist that on Eddie because he's worried about manipulating Eddie into this. Of course, once Eddie finds out how much Buck is doing for Christopher, Eddie's just going to take over. He's like, okay, you're mine now. I'm never letting you go. Um, look at you. You're willing to kidnap my kid. Kiss me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, rom that's so romantic. Forever. Um, it's a strange I love you. <laughs> That's rom like that Buck's is a romantic as room fuck. His escape plan for <laughs> escaping with Christopher if they have to, right? And Eddie Eddie goes and looks at it and he's like, "I'm so in love with you right now." <laughs> this <laughs> this this this, thing this, I've ever seen. this crime plan you've got is just amazing. I love it. I mean, but honestly, it is romantic because it is an it is a a physical representation of Buck's willingness to give up everything and everything for christopher his career which he's already fought for i mean i mean just like it's it's stunning yeah, so he's got a plan a and a plan b and apparently there's a hitman's plan c um i think plan c could be a playlist but you know <laughs> of course he's gonna save eddie and eddie's gonna get his memories of you know the the, the stones get involved and eddie gets his memories and he finds out what's going on but his plans are about Christopher, but his hopes are also about Eddie. So he makes room for Eddie in all of his plans, but he doesn't have expectations of Eddie. Um, so when he's planning his house, he has, um, you know, it, it, his reasons for that house are the reason why he's building a house is because he wants a, the house that is going to be what Christopher needs now and be flexible enough for as he, as he gets older um, and be what he needs be what they need as a family for the long haul if everything works out so he wants to build the perfect house it's like his gift so that's part of so his his motivation for that goal is very specific right why this house and why in this way um okay so the person who asked the question about motivation they said that their motivation internal motivator is to protect their children okay well your external motivator and your external conflict is what is the threat to the children there because there has to be a threat if they're protecting them um beyond just you know the world at large because fair okay so i get i did get this i got, did get some specifics <laughs> i'm going to share them with kira but we're, we're going to have to talk around this because i don't want to reveal somebody else's plot i'm going to text this to you why have we got okay. so many channels? It's like okay. endless. Uh, you know what? We only had like know. ten channels, and then it had. Then I know it just we just grow and grow. Well, you see what happens. We're a diverse group. Um, there's a lot of external. Mm. Um, so you've got um political. Your external conflicts here are there's a lot political and societal structure are creating political conflict. I mean. Uh, external conflict um, and creating and and the pressures of the societal uh, structure and the political issues um, that make it difficult for her to act this woman protecting her children um, are also part of the um, external motivators because it's creating this external situation that is difficult for her to act against and so in order to protect her children um, She's motivated to take action. So her goal is to protect her children. And so the the action she takes to protect her children, um, I would say what you described to me, the situation is mostly external. Wouldn't you? Well, there's, there's internal too. And I don't want to give away the fandom or anything, but considering the circumstances that they live in, um, 
there are psychiatric issues in play. Um, and also the concern of any move she makes could set off those psych those yeah. psychiatric issues. Like if she removes her children, knowing that one of them is that would be huge. Let's, and I'm sorry for being it, so I vague. Th I think we can draw um, parallels to it could be it could get her killed. With, um, um, let's do the Malfoys Draco. Um, Narcissus trying to protect Draco from um, Lucius's ambitions with the Death Eaters. Uh, uh, fair parallel? Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. I think the fandom would give too much, honey. We we don't want to... Because sometimes people will take your idea and, we, and so, we don't want your idea to get sniped. Um, okay, so let's say that Narcissa sees Lucius going completely off the rails and he moves, he's telling her that he's going to let Voldemort fucking live in her house. Now, Voldemort's coming. He's not there yet. What does she do? She is intent on so protecting her son. That's a fair, uh, that's a fair uh, an, an, uh, comparison to what you described. Civil. And so you've got the external. You said, mm -hmm. you said you were struggling with the external. The external is actually there. You've got the political and societal pressure. Um the 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 structure of the 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 that that are making it difficult the for her to pure act. Pure blood politics. She's box yeah, she's boxed in probably by the her family marriage dynamic. contract or something of that nature. Um uh uh Draco, she wants to protect Draco, but his role as the Malfoy heir, if let's say it's a noble situation where maybe Lucius is Lord Malfoy and Draco's his heir, and there maybe is a magical element to that that is creating an external pressure as well. All of these are external forces that are at play working against her. So so you have to ask yourself, can she get Lucius right. back or on the straight and around him? So that is that is your external conflict is all of this um well the the main external conflict is Lucius wants to bring Voldemort to the house. But you've got, your conflict is also coming from all of this external structure that is working against her. Society, politics, all that stuff. Possibly her own marriage contract. Yeah, and maybe even Draco. So she's got and all maybe stuff even stuff against her, and that's all external conflict. And when when she... and But there also... Some of it is external motivators. When, when he says, I'm going to bring Voldemort to live in this house, that isn't a that is a motivator coming from outside because it's an impetus to act. Okay. It is saying, here's, here's something that's going to happen that is motivating you to do something. And it motivates her to call on the black dragon and ask um, the black dragon to magically protect her son. I'm stealing Kira's character. Um, so, her internal motivator is exactly what you said earlier. She wants to protect her child. It's very, it's it, at the, it's a very, sometimes the simplest motivators, the simplest goals, the simplest con are, are the most base and the strongest. And a mother's desire to protect her child is very um, primal. Also, your decision here is cr crucial because if you ask Zir, as I write him for a solution, or you ask Hecate for a solution. Yep. Hecate. Is that, is, is that how you said that? Hecate? You're going to get different solutions. Because Hecate might manipulate. Might just cut somebody's head off. Zero wouldn't bother. 
he would cut somebody's head off. If Zier answered her plea, he would kill Lucius. Or he would help her kill Lucius. Because that's the thing. If he's a threat, if Lucius and his insanity and his pure blood politics are a threat to her child, how does she neutralize that threat? If she can't work around him and she can't redeem him, then she has to get rid of him. So how mercenary is your character? And who does she call upon? Now, Narcissa in canon is mercenary as fuck. <laughs> it's just none to preserve that bitch. Um, I feel like if I were writing it, I would have Narcissa take yeah. Lucius out. That's what I would do. I, I'd go for the nuclear approach if I was... Because a mother protecting her child is going to possibly take... Because he's fucking insane, and he's and he's taken a knee for a monster. Right. And it there's no coming back any, from that. If you want to have another source of internal conflict, her magic could be at risk by doing this. But it could be that it's revealed that Lucius has, um, um, well, by subjugating his magic to Voldemort's, that it has released Narcissa from her um, magical obligations to Lucius, and so she's set free. He's broken some kind of promise. He's broken. Maybe he promised during their marriage vows, or maybe it's part of the contract that he would never endanger her. But if you backed it up a little bit, you could say never endangered her child, that they agreed that they would protect their children. And she probably maybe put that in that contract to prevent him from right. throwing so away or killing a squib child. If you're, because she's worried that he might. And then that way, she can dump his ass second right. year after he, after so he gives Ginny Weasley that an diary. External, if one of your external conflicts <laughs> is that your character is worried about the legal ramifications of what she's doing, um, it could be that by, you know, your character putting the children in danger after a fashion, that um, it it's, it she finds that it winds up um, obviating the the conflict that she's in. And that's potentially a worry she has, but maybe she's going to go forward with it anyway. Because, and that's an internal. You have to ask yourself: Do you want your character right to so get her better life? And, but it in your setup, I I when when I read your setup, I read all the external conflict right there, which is it it's certainly the external conflict and and the motivate the external motivators are there as well. Um, in terms of external goals. Yeah, the external threat is big. So yeah, that you have a huge external, external threat. That it, the impetus for her to act. Um, but when it comes to an external goal, that is a little bit more nebulous because her her, her she may not have an external goal. Her her whole goal may be completely intangible, which is the safety of her children, um, which is fine. Your character doesn't have to have. But if you want to give her an external goal, freedom. that has yeah, to but be that's still she kind of gets a little away with whatever she does. But, um, yeah. But you don't necessarily, when it comes to the goal, you don't necessarily have to have a defined external goal. Your character doesn't have to be after something tangible, but they they could be. Um, I mean, it could be as simple yeah, as putting the Lord's could, ring on her son's know, hand. Seeing her son ascend could be her external goal. Um, so I see both your internal and your GMC just in the basic brief outline that you sent. Um, you're welcome to send me any follow-up questions or send Kira any follow-up questions you have because um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that your external motivators are baked in, um, which a lot of times people will do that. They'll yeah. bake their your, externals in, it's in your world. and not even your realize they've is done creating it. the external when they're looking for motivators. Um, and, and, and sometimes that is the issue is the world you're living in is the external conflict. That's, that's just, yeah, on several fronts, you got the Death Eaters, you got the big start, the external threat of Voldemort. I think you can make parallels between what I'm talking about in your actual fandom with what I'm saying here. Um, you've got uh, the character of Dumbledore. How is he going to react? Is he going to be a problem? Um, is he a source of help to her? What will he demand of her in return? He's the chief warlock, right? So, yeah, if you get my meaning, okay. Um, so you have to ask yourself, you know, like, how will Voldemort respond to this? Is he still going to try to come into the house? Does he still think he has the right to be there? Does he still want to be there? Or has the attention of Lucius's unsolved murder <laughs> dissuaded him? Why did he want to be there? And is that reason still there? And if it is, how does she neutralize Voldemort? Someone made a joke up above that Narcissus was born on July 31st, which I find to be kind of hysterical because there could be very literal that, like, she was in the next room when that prophecy was given. <laughs> and she was born on July 31st. Um, yeah, there did be a little retcon on her parents because apparently both her parents took a knee for Voldemort. So, so they wouldn't have been denying him. Unless they literally denied him Narcissa three times. Well, it's a threat. They could have tried to fight him, but it doesn't mean they defied him to his face. They could have just been really disobedient. Right. <laughs> yeah. He told us to that guy. We're He's not going to. Right now. <laughs> Anyways. So, yeah, it just. Voldemort still would be there, but it, w yeah. it could change how Voldemort is dealt with. Whether he's an immediate threat or a threat that's looming way into the future now. Um, because did he want to come into the house because he wanted something specific from Lucius? Did he have a plan for Lucius as far as like being the public face of the Death Eaters? And um, so you have to ask yourself, was Lucius the attraction? Or was Voldemort after Or was it the house um, itself? Draco. Which would really be a, a big impetus for action. Draco. And sometimes when it comes to external conflict and external motivators, like we said that sometimes it's not obvious because it's baked in the conflict and the motivation is baked into the, the situation your characters are in in nine one one, especially if you're doing something that's like call based, right? A lot of the external conflict and the external motivation comes from these, their jobs, right? Um, you can actually build a, from any kind of procedural, you can build a lot of external conflict just for the nature of the work they do. So if you need to put your character under stress, have them just have a shitty call, right? Um, it just depends upon what the needs of your story are. Do you need to have an overarching big source of external conflict? Or do you just need to have your characters be in a stressful situation that forces them to admit their feelings for one another? You know, a cave-in will do. External, that's, that's an external conflict of sorts, right? So, um, and... Sometimes people don't realize that the situation they create for their characters to, you know, be us against the world is supplying the external GMC just in the scenario. So um, often that's why often the internal stuff is harder 
because you have to work out what is plausible for your character to do and react and and the whys and the follow-up that all is much more complicated um i just had too many of them open we do have a lot of fucking um, channels <laughs> that i'm copying the spiner back to cura okay and one of the things that you could do um about Voldemort, I think that's the parallel here, um, is um, he could be, if you don't want to address mm -hmm. it in a shorter story, is that could be, you could lay the groundwork for how it's different or delayed, or maybe what she's done has delayed Voldemort's resurrection. And the implication is that that's Voldemort's a problem for the future, and you can end your story before Voldemort's arrival. Um, that the story then becomes about dealing with Lucius and about securing Draco's position and his safety and making changes that keep Voldemort out of the house. And the implication... Yes. In canon, Lucius has a horcrux. What if that was the draw? Lucius, I mean, Voldemort's spirit coming into the house, he was about the horcrux. If he removes the horcrux, if she removes the horcrux from the house and has it destroyed... It rips away a canon point, obviously, a big one. Um, and there is a similar object of a sort in your canon that would fit. Um, that this, this singular object is the reason that Voldemort is coming. If you remove this object from the house, there's no reason yeah, for Voldemort to be remotely interested in the Malfoy estate. Okay. Yeah, so you could... Instead you of could, all those things, it's that one you thing. You know, just destroy that horcrux your thing and the implication then is that either this problem for the reader either is that this problem is not going to happen at all or it's happening way off in the future and it's not the focus of your story focus of your story and that's important is because you need to know if the focus of your story is about securing the child's safety which you said is just what your goal is about securing the children's safety um then the focus and while Draco is a child, uh, Narcissa would be his regent. She could work on protections for him, um, warding, yeah. education. So if the focus is on that, etc. So that's one of the things that's really important is to stay focused on your goal. Um, and if the, if if that, then don't get distracted with Voldemort unless he's part of your goal. So if the goal is also to secure, to protect the child and destroy Voldemort, then that's two different goals. And that's fine. Sometimes you have more than one, two goals, more than one goal. But if, if you want to keep your plot more streamlined and focused, focus on the child because that's tight and then make changes that imply that Voldemort's either dealt with or pushed off into the future and that he's not going to be coming to the house because that's what you need to do to ensure i mean a good way to deal with voldemort in this situation is to give the diary to ragnarok and say um my husband has this dark piece of shit in my house and you know he's dead so um give it to you and he realizes what it is and he asks her if she has any other dark pieces of shit in the house and she says i don't think so he said well and, and then you don't have I'll to go further others. with that Right, you and you don't have to explore it further because and it's, and it's no longer her problem, and your story is over, and the reader knows that it's being handled. So, um, anyway, in terms of GMC, I think you've got the potential to have it all in in what you've said. Um, it's just a matter of 
of deciding what you what, how focused you want. Yeah, I mean, that could get big. And your word count. <laughs> Harry Potter is a huge fan of. Leave <laughs> that question. Hope that that helped. Okay, good. Well, this podcast, minute, yeah, has been going on for a while. <laughs> A hot minute. I don't want to actually give how long it's been going because when I edit it, I'll edit out all of our silences and it'll be dramatically like sometimes as, as much as 30 minutes shorter. And I had somebody ask me um, if I had deleted a whole bunch of content because I had a, I had said that, okay, this podcast has been going on for almost five hours. We need to end it. But there were big gaps because we'd gotten tea breaks and stuff. And so when I edited it, it ended up being like three hours and some change. And somebody emailed me and asked me if I deleted a large part. No. Um, portion of the podcast and the answer is we started kind a, of we started but there was nothing said <laughs> so we can because find the delete spots really easily and just you know trim it up so i hardly ever delete actual content um unless one of us makes a mistake and or says something that we really don't want to be preserved yeah. in the podcast I mean, i'll go in and edit that out but that's really rare like once i said my I dog's real name my, so i i, I, I edited that out name, real name <laughs> I've also said they're fake names too, so you know. I mean, good luck figuring out which is which. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that's how sometimes that happens. But that's really rare because we've been doing this for a while. But sometimes wrong. Sometimes we're you know what we're doing. And then most you never of the time, come out of our mouth. Anyways, I hope that, right. Yeah. <laughs> or there's a traumatic brain injury or surgery. The last one, really? I had my last physical therapy appointment today. Well, I have this. I have, this is my last physical therapy appointment. In three weeks, I have a reevaluation to see how I'm handling the changes stand, in um did you have to stand in my body. Today? I'll have an evaluation. I did not. That was just yes. That was that was uncalled for. I actually when I woke, I when I rolled into that place, and he was standing there, and I was like, no. And he was like, like, I don't like you. you. Didn't like the no. <laughs> I'm not doing that ever again. But. I said no to that, so they put me on a little trampoline. And I was like, I, I, I haven't been on one of these I things since I, I was a toddler. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I said, I said, my, I said, I can't. I said, I, me and the girls can't handle this kind of action. He said, you're just going to be picking your feet up. You're not going to be bouncing. Okay. But it was better than the ball. The ball was ridiculous. I am too old to stand on a ball. Even no half balls. a ball, which is what that thing was. And it was half the a ball, ball and the other side was flat. Julie called it the thing that it yeah. No balls. The most of all. I had to sit on the ball part the and then he part. flipped it over and maybe sit on the flat part too. Yeah, that's the really hard part. Wow. I have a balance board that I use that I that I rock back and forth on for strength training, but that that ball was next level. Anyways, I hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast and you've learned something about GMC and that you take these lessons going forward into your craft and that you um to strive to improve every day and i'm sorry if i made you cry about the whole cave thing it wasn't my intention it isn't even my fault something happened in mod chat and it got me all worked up about it so i blame them as always as always well, if something goes wrong and makes you sad challenge accepted <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just joking we have a fantastic mod team on crossroads and on just right they are amazing they work their asses off and they make everything around here run really smooth so you guys should just be super grateful for every single one of them because they are amazing awesome um true true 
heroes of the day every day anyways i hope you guys have a great weekend and we shall catch you later